This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. And I know in the past we wanted separate roles. Then I chose you. Yeah. And I've seen the kind of dirt that took my baby from me. Now, usually I start every episode of Psychology is Dead by stating how day, month, and year in which the show was recorded in. But because this episode was actually compiled and recorded over the last 30 days, that wouldn't be accurate or necessary. But regardless, I am still Quentin Moody, and this is still Psychology is Dead. And this is something that I've been wanting to do and preparing for for a long time. This is the art of Lucha. And for this show, I compiled three different segments from five very different people. Case Lowe from Voices of Wrestling, Sam from We Don't Know Wrestling, Rob Viper from the Como Estas podcast, Dylan Harris from Eastern Lariat and Lucha Talk on MLW, and the co-host of my Surprise to S. Lucha podcast on the Wrestling With Words Audio Network, Brandon. And Lucha was always a thing I intended to have as a theme here on Psychology is Dead because it is something that I am very passionate about. It's something very near and dear to my heart. And it's just something that for the last few years of my fandom and how much it has meant to be, meant to me, I couldn't imagine not watching it and I think kind of blending my two loves which is talking about Lucha and just in general trying to break down the ideas and thoughts behind professional wrestling as a whole was just a natural thing to do and I gave every person that I talked with a very different question We all had the same basic starters. When did you start watching Lucha? Uh, Why are you still trying to watch it now? In Case's case, asking him what his main gripes are with Lucha, since he was the only person that I could find that actively had problems with Lucha and wasn't that big of a fan. So his segment is different than the others. But I thought... Each segment brought something unique to the table, and I hope you all enjoy them. And up first, I have with me from We Don't Know Wrestling on the Wrestling With Words audio network, Sam. Sam, how are you? I am doing fantastic. How about yourself? Whenever I'm on your show, I think I'm pretty tired, but I'm not as tired this time around, so I think I'm, you know, good now. That's that's an upgrade. That's <laughs> an upgrade. So, on this show, I always... uh want to get opinions from people who are very passionate about the topic at hand. And I know for you that you're a pretty big Lucha fan. You're not someone that's big into WWE, but Lucha is a, I wouldn't say your wheelhouse, but something that you feel very strongly about, right? Yes. I I love me the Lucha. Uh, Just, I don't think there's a type of match of Lucha I don't enjoy. And that's what I like so much about it. Right, so I want to know, 
do you remember your introduction to Lucha when you first started watching? Because Lucha isn't a thing that, obviously, for people that are from the state or from Canada or whatever, like, that's not something they grew up watching. So when did you first, like, start getting into Lucha Libre? Uh, I probably started getting more into Lucha in 2012, 13, somewhere around there. Uh, I was browsing the interwebs and sort of branching out from the WWE and TNAs of the world and starting to get into Ring of Honor, starting to get into New Japan, um, the real good New Japan, not the not what we got now, <laughs> um, with John Bernard and such. But Wrestling Forum was kind of my place. I know people were like, lol's Wrestling Forum, but that was the place I kind of discovered a whole bunch of wrestling I didn't know existed, and that includes Lucha, and I kind of stumbled upon people starting to talk about the 80s set for Death Valley Driver video reviews. Um, I kind of just was browsing through, and I was like, okay, I'll check some of this stuff out. And uh, kind of went from there. When you, first, when you first started getting into it, was there a particular uh, wrestler that caught your attention and made you want to keep watching? Because I know when I first started watching Lucha, I wasn't watching current stuff. I was more watching old Rey Mysterio and Triple A stuff. So, my gateway to Lucha was watching Rey Mysterio versus Ecosis or Rey Mysterio versus Hoovy. So, was there like a particular wrestler that uh, got you into Lucha? Uh, it might have been Nagrakasis. That would that might be the actual kind of epicenter of this whole thing. I know I was also a big fan of the Black Terry Shigo Che matches. Um, so I don't know if there's a particular wrestler, but sort of there was a group of guys, those older gentlemen uh, in Lucha through either the 90s or kick and booty in the early 2010s. That kind of attracted me to the whole aspect of Lucha Libre. It's funny that whenever we talk about Lucha in private conversations or anything like that, that usually we want to talking about like uh, bloody brawls or... Uh, mat-based matches, and I rarely hear us or anyone else when you talk about Lucha have these, like, conversations about high flyers. So, would you say that you're someone that gravitates more towards the brawling and mat-based stuff than the high-flying prettiness? Yeah, that's probably that's probably absolutely correct. Uh, I find that stuff to be just more grounded and more gritty and something that they really do well in Lucha. Uh, I might be part of the scenery where you have fans going nuts for these warriors just covered in blood, uh, tearing at their heritage, essentially, that they're wearing on their head uh, and trying to rip that from them. It's a unique style. It's something that is visceral and and exciting. Uh, That's kind of why you watch a combat sport, in my opinion. So, yeah, I like that grit. I like that to get down and dirty or I like my flash to take place on the mat because that seems like something that every time I watch it, I'm like, they were doing this stuff in the 80s and we're popping for what now these days? <laughs> uh, so there's there's so many cool things you can do on the mat that I don't think we really think about and – it doesn't matter what decade you go through. They're doing cool stuff that you wouldn't think could work, and it does. I said this on Supresa Eslusia recently, but uh, when we were talking about El Dandy, and, it's fun- and it was funny to me and Brandon that 
whenever we talk about guys that grapple or do mad based stuff, usually the reference point is oh they're influenced by world of sport, they're influenced by the British style, or they'll even say they're influenced by like shoot style, which would be like UWF, battle arts, ring, stuff like that. And you rarely ever hear Lucha get mentioned. And Lucha has some of the coolest looking mat work I can ever recall. Yeah, it's always so... People seem to take uh, stock in things that are silky smooth looking. And Lucha grappling can be the silkiest looking stuff on the planet. But it also looks like that person's in a freaking knot. Yeah. Uh, which... I think sometimes I get lost in in the uh, world sports style. Um, so I don't know when. So you're, at this point, you're in the lucha. You're four or five years into watching it on a consistent basis. I would say. So, what made you keep watching now? You know, four or five years later. I just think it's a st- It's a type of wrestling with so much variety and so many characters uh but it never gets boring to me even when they're doing the same old stuff it always feels fresh regardless uh it kind of plays to my sensibilities uh with those kind of the vibrancy of it all i like showmanship and i think lucha libre is all about excellent showmanship so the main critique of lucha from people that aren't that deep into it or maybe outright dislike the genre is that lucha is pretty hard to get into so the main question i have for you and if this bends into a different conversation whatever but do you agree with the idea that lucha is a hard style to get into wrestling wise i really don't i don't i don't think it has too many that many barriers really uh when we get down to it uh, compared to you i guess it's different than american wrestling or japanese wrestling but i don't think it's different enough to the point where you can't quote unquote get it right uh it's professional wrestling i don't think at the end of the day there's any style that's too different from one another to be appreciated so especially since lucha has the high flying so if you're used to that uh from a Michinoko Pro or Best of the Super Juniors or something like that, there is the high-flying Lucha Libre. If you want more of that old Memphis stuff, you got the bloody Lucha battles that go on to this day. Uh, and I don't think many areas in the world are doing these big brawls uh, with blood and guts. So I think you still you got that going for it. Uh, I mean, trios matches, I think, are the most basic and easiest to digest wrestling there is on the planet uh i don't think that many other parts of the world maybe new japan has kind of gone into it uh uh, delivering quality trio or multi-man matches multi-man tag matches uh so i just really don't understand the concept that it's hard to get into there are some quirks to it but i don't think that's a barrier too far I think that's interesting, the fact that you said like there's quirks, but necessarily it isn't a completely foreign style. Because the thing about Lucha is that there's always a pretty clear distinction between the faces and heels or the Rudos and, Rudos and Technicos. Besides like a Negro Casas or Ultimo Guerrero, I mean, wouldn't you say that the lines are always pretty clear on who's a Rudo and who's a Technico? They tell you up front, yeah. majority of the time, 
hey, here are your good guys, here are your bad guys, act accordingly. Uh, so they're giving a dynamic, literally, uh, in words. Yeah, getting it not, told to you. It's not a gray area, which I think that's harder wrestling to get into. Yeah. Uh, when everyone's playing a character that's shades of gray, which I think often just becomes mud rather than true, deep characters. Um, so yeah, I like to be able to say, hey, it's good, it's evil, they're smashing up against each other. Yeah, so what was wrong with that is that you're right, there isn't really any shades of gray within Lucha besides maybe Negocasis. And when you look at WWE um, and their history, you can go back to a guy like Steve Austin being the first guy to really make those shades of gray. You can go back to WCW and Ric Flair being a heel but getting cheered. Or you can go to Japan and a guy like uh, Ricky Choshu was, I guess, was supposed to be a heel but got cheered a lot. Or a guy currently like Tetsuya Naito that leads a heel stable but gets cheered. So even in those regions of the world, there's those shades of gray in their performers. And Lucha, I I feel like, is the only uh, place to really stay true to what a heel face dynamic is. And I think that's kind of refreshing. And I would think more people would appreciate that. For sure, for sure. So, there's another idea that, you know, when you watch Lucha, that you should judge it by different standards. And this is one that I know that uh, is kind of controversial. Because, again, it's professional wrestling. Shouldn't all professional wrestling be, at its core, be judged on the same values and such and such. But, uh... How much do you, do you agree with the idea that Lucha has its own standards? I I don't... I think it's partially because I don't like the word standards. I think that paints a right. weird idea of what is good and what is bad in professional wrestling. Uh, I think we need to kind of, hey, take a step back and what is professional wrestling? What are we really enjoying about it? Uh, it's like when people say standards change... Uh, through the years, I don't know what that means. At the core, it's professional wrestling. Um, don't you don't need to judge us against a different set of criteria? I don't think. Um, I judge it for what it is. I don't know if that is a better way of saying it. Um, <laughs> don't. Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels odd to say, "Hey, Lucha Libre needs to be looked at so differently that." one way or the other it's lesser or above or I don't I don't know if you can judge something at a different standard and consider that style parallel to another style I guess what I was more getting at there is that you've seen enough lucha to see that sometimes it's pretty sloppy or sometimes they uh, throw weak looking strikes or they or you've seen the spot a billion a million times when they do like the shoulder blocks and there's like no power between it, but they're still cooperating or things like that. So aesthetically, a lot of people would be used to re- to their wrestling looking a bit more forceful. With Lucha, sometimes you don't get that. So in that way, would you maybe give Lucha a pass on that's not what the style is about? Or I guess that's what I'm, what, what I'm more asking. I don't know if I give it a pass. I just, I don't notice it when I'm watching Lucha. Um, I mean, if they're doing things in a way that doesn't make me take notice of 
those sorts of spots. If the whole point of the match isn't two guys slamming their shoulders into each other or isn't um, delivering the strongest strikes possible, uh, then maybe it doesn't matter to me when things are a little weaker or things don't look super crisp. Because I don't think, nonetheless, I don't think crispness is uh, important, a hugely important part of wrestling or my enjoyment of wrestling. Right. So it's more the the whole feel of the match. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer. It doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. We can all feel things. Uh, that doesn't really base into any sort of objective criteria. It's Then it's just speaking completely subjectively, but it's sort of, hey, am I noticing it in the moment or do I not? Because I feel like we oftentimes say, hey, they did a spot-for-spot recreation or whatnot. I'm like, well, did they do a spot-for-spot recreation or did they put some different feeling in those spots? Uh, Which I think is paramount to kind of understanding why someone would like a match better or worse. And since you don't really think that Lucha is a hard style to get into, I'm curious now, what style do you think is hardest to get into? Because I have my own answer, but I want to know, I mean, where you lie on that, on what is a hard style to get. Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a great answer for it. Um, because Piero feels like an easy style to get into, but it might be. No, World of Sport is also something. I, I don't know if there's any style of feel like wrestling is too hard to get into. I guess is more my point. Um, okay, maybe okay. maybe maybe Joshi. I think might be the one style that I find hard to get into. Okay, so my answer was would probably be shoot style because that. You know, we're both got people that watch mixed martial arts, and so it isn't that hard for uh, us to maybe watch it. But if someone isn't into grappling, striking, mat-based stuff, you know, you know, almost a mixed martial arts format, that it'd be really hard to get into. So I, I think, think that's fair. Yeah, I think of yeah. lucha isn't the genre that's the hardest. It probably is shoe style. Yeah, and shoe style also has multiple promotions with multiple different rule sets and you kind of need to be aware of what promotion you're watching to know what to expect. So yeah, two styles probably probably definitely up there for harder styles to get into. So now we're we're past uh, your main question. I mean, there is some things that I have want to accomplish with this episode and maybe get people that aren't that big into Lucha to check out some stuff. So I'm going to ask you what your favorite Lucha match of all time is. And I'm going to ask you what would be the Lucha match that you recommend for beginners uh, to the genre. Can you do that? I, I'm going to try here. I'm going to try here. Um, I'm not great with dates. So excuse me if I flub something up here. Uh, favorite Lucha match all time. Uh, Nairo Casas versus Santo from 97. That's a good pick. That is, for, I don't think it's the most lucha match ever. Oh no, um, it's, it's not. It's, it's, in some ways, it's not even a lucha match. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a completely unique experience uh, to me, and I think you need to really you need to watch it to know. 
I, I'm not sure if you can properly understand how unique it is until you've watched at least a little bit of Lucha yeah. um, to get a little bit introduced to this style and say, oh, yeah, this is totally not what I was thinking these two were going to do uh, based on what they do typically. Uh, yeah, that's a all-time great match. Um, I, I don't know what the best entry point is. Uh, I guess that's kind of depends on what type of fan you are, right. but okay, I think um, MS1 we... versus Sengo Chicana is definitely, is one of the great greatest matches of all time. I think one of the more easily to understand matches you're in a final Lucha Libre. It's just two guys killing each other. Okay. I was going to, I was going to like say, maybe we can narrow it, narrow it down to someone that's like you, or maybe is uh more drawn to the brawling and mat based things in wrestling. So off the top of my head, you know, L.A. Park versus Dr. Wagner from, from, like, 2013 would be, like, the one if you want brawling, bloody spectacle. Or even, like, uh, Echicero versus Charles Lucero from 2013. So, like... <laughs> the one thing I worry about with Wagner Jr. and uh, Park from 13 is just that ending. Um, yeah. I mean, that might be one of those things that's like, oh, that's a quirk that... Uh, might take a, a a few matches to appreciate. Yeah, uh, I guess that's what that's one of those barriers. I guess there's a lot of those in um park matches though. So if people like you know start binge watching uh, L.A. Park, then they'll see that a lot of his endings are pretty um, confusing or maybe downright bad sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they're not the, the endings aren't always the most satisfying part of the bouts. So if you expect that to if you're always expecting clean finishes and nobody's expense, expecting the hottest part of the match to be the ending, I'm not sure if Lucha's going to be the place for you. Right. So, before I let you go, I remember last year that you did turn in the Greatest Wrestler Ever ballot, right? Yes. And, if I recall correctly, Negro Casas was your number one. Negro Casas was my number one. So, uh, now that we're almost a full year removed from the GWB process and Negro Casas didn't finish in the top 20, are you still kind of livid? upset? Livid? Yeah. Angry? Yeah. Um, wanting, to th- wanting to throw a riot over Negro Casas and not cracking the top 20. I'm still confused. I'm still baffled by it. Uh, the greatest wrestler of all time not being in the top 20 seems insane. That anti-lucha bias coming back at it. Um, seriously, I'm not really that upset about it. Um, I kind of expected it, but, um, I do think he is the greatest, even a year out, uh, with some hindsight and not being in that process. Uh, he does everything I think a professional wrestler should do. He has charisma for days. Um, he, he's the, the most, uh, interesting lucha guy to me because he's not as lucha influenced it feels like he's he's got a lot more going on for him than just hey i'm a lucha guy who does great mag work or hey i'm a lucha guy that can throw some real nasty strikes uh he does a lot so if you're interested in lucha libre never cost this it's your man and that'll wrap us up for this segment sam thank you very much for taking the time to record this with me uh yes you can follow me first on twitter at concrete 1992 uh you can go to uh 
wrestlingwithwords.com to listen to my podcast, and we don't know wrestling. Thank you very much, Sam, and we're on to the next one. And with me now is one of the co-hosts of Open the Voice Gate on the Voices of Wrestling Audio Network and a reviewer for Voices of Wrestling as well, Case Low. Case, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm pretty good. See, it was weird because I've known you for a pretty good amount of time, and I don't think we've ever, ever done a show together. Yeah, we know each other going back to an old form that, you know, I met um, a lot of people that I actually still talk to, but that was the beginnings of my wrestling fandom in terms of getting into indie, I mean, even indies, let alone uh, Puro and then the little bit of Lucha I've dabbled into. So we, we go back quite a ways. Yeah, so it was weird that this is like the first time you've ever done a show, but uh, I did want to have you on because you're one of the only people that I talk to or see on Twitter that actively kind of have problems with Lucha as a genre. And for an episode focused on Lucha Libre, I don't want it to be so one-sided where it's all about how great Lucha is. I do want to get kind of a opinion that uh, sees it a different way. So, I guess, what was your first experience trying to get into Lucha? I'm going to say my first experience trying to get into Lucha would probably be around 18 months ago. We're recording this February 2017. Um, it would have been for the Greatest Wrestler Ever project. Um, and around that time, I think even before then, actually, because the first Lucha match that I remember watching in real time with other people was the Atlantis Ultimo Guerrero match, uh, that infamous match now. Um, and that was the start of me watching Lucha. I had heard good things about it. I remember, um, you know, Sam put it over on Twitter. Voices of Wrestling was watching it. I was just sort of getting immersed in the, in the community that we're in now. And that seemed to be the hot thing. I thought I'd give it a watch. And that was one of those matches that I watched, and I was like, oh, is this it? Is this what people are excited about? Um, and from there, it's been a struggle with me getting into Lucha, whereas, you know, it seems like any other thing that I try, whether it be World of Sport or 80s All Japan or Torimon, those all seem to connect with me. Lucha's always been an issue. Yeah, I was curious about that, since you have, you know, watch a lot of wrestling from outside of North America. You're pretty well um, versed in Japanese wrestling. You've seen some world of sport, I would assume. So it's like, it's not like you're someone that has only seen North American, no, or American wrestling, actually, and doesn't get Lucha. You're someone that has, like, dabbled in a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I pride myself on trying to watch a little bit of everything. Uh, my biggest blind spot is Joshi, both modern and um, the, the classics from the 80s and 90s. That's a style that I'm sure I'd like. I've just never had time to get into it. Um, but I've sort of prided myself on at least dipping my toes in a lot of different ponds. Um, I'm someone that if you know me, you know I like Dragon Gate more than anything. It's it's my favorite thing in the world outside of wrestling, let alone in wrestling. I mean, I, you know, I love Dragon Gate. I, I live the product. I, I try to watch as much of it as humanly possible. Um, but I love early 2000s Noah. I love All Japan. I love Prime Ring of Honor. Um, it's just Lucha that I've had an issue with. So what would you say has been the biggest barrier for you getting into Lucha? Because... In certain genres like Puro, it feels like there isn't that much of a barrier besides maybe language 
or maybe the uh, quiet crowd um, when in like the beginning stages of a match or something like that. But like in Lucha, it feels like for people that aren't that into it, there's a lot of stuff going on that kind of keeps you out. So what's what are some of the big ones for you? I think for certain that there's a different style to Lucha, the way it's paced and the way it's presented, that is very different. I also think there might be an issue of the way it's presented in American wrestling to pure, authentic CMLL, AAA Lucha. Um, If you've watched WWE your entire life, you have this mindset of Lucha in your mind that is small guys with masks, doing flips, doing hurricane ranas, and that is Lucha Libre. Um, and so as someone that wasn't as historically, um, knowledgeable watching that Atlanta Ultimo Guerrero match, that would have been, I think, September, 2014, watching that and seeing Atlantis do awkward grappling and seeing Ultimo Guerrero sort of stumble around. It was a little bit of a culture shock almost of just like, this is not what I was expecting. I think the more Lucha I've watched, the more I've, I've been able to break that stereotype of this is what lucha should be um but now that i watch more i still don't have that connection there and i think part of that is just the wrestling i like if you know me you know i'm not a big fan of of the timothy thatchers of the world or that grapple heavy style um and i'm also not a fan of of brawls i don't i don't like memphis the way some people do i don't like those 80 80s territorial brawls that people get into and that's where a lot of the pimp lucha stuff comes from. It's either brawls or it's it's tricked out grappling, or at least what some people would consider tricked out grappling, and it's not my cup of tea. Throw that into a different presentation with two out of three falls, weird referee counting, which sounds like a bizarre complaint, but the way the referees count in lucha threw me off for the longest time. Oh yeah, don't oh yeah, don't worry about it. I get that. Like when I first yeah, started getting uh, in the you know real lucha. Like, they're counting so slow. Yeah, no, it's, and it's stuff like that that I'm going, this is so different. It's miles away from anything I've seen, and I like different, but I don't know if this is the thing for me. So I think there are a lot of different factors there. I think for new Lucha viewers, I, I honestly think the way that it's presented in America is this is what Lucha is, is a big reason that people don't hit the ground running uh, with Lucha, and it takes some maybe some time to get fully invested in it. Yeah, you raise a good point here in that, you know, the American uh, way in that they present Lucha is that you can even go back to WCW and the bringing in the uh, cruiserweights, Ray, Hoovy, Sikosis, uh, La Parca, Silver King, like bringing in all these athletic guys and then just putting them in there to go have five minute spot fast, essentially. And if that's all you're accustomed to from watching uh, wrestling television in the United States, that's what you're going to think luchadors are. And I was probably guilty of that, guilty of that too, but uh, at the same time, Rey Mysterio was my gateway guy into like going out and watching like AAA and, uh, in the 90s and things like that. So that is a big part of it. And would you say that now that since you've been watching it more and more and more that... uh the American presentation of it is starting to wear off on you, or is it still there somewhat? I don't think it's there anymore. I try to make an effort to watch pimped Lucha stuff. Um, I'm not someone that can go through the Cubs fan YouTube and watch every match. Um, that's just not 
the way I function, whereas with a Dragon Gate show or a New Japan show, I'll watch the undercards, I'll enjoy the undercards, and then, you know, I obviously love the good stuff. Um, with Lucha, I try to have a basic understanding for whoever I'm watching before I go into a match, and then I try to watch the stuff that other people seem to really like. Um, I like Volador Jr., I love Cabanario. Um Flamita's a guy that, I mean, I think is one of the best wrestlers in the world. No one's able to do what he does, but I've noticed with Lucha, I feel um, the way about Luchadors that a lot of people feel about Drangate wrestlers, where when they're outside of their home promotion, uh, when Drangate guys went to NOAA or to DGUSA even or to ROH, people seem to enjoy them more, and I've noticed that when luchadors are either going to American Indies or they're in a Lucha Underground type setting or they're doing the Fantastic Mania tour, I seem to enjoy that. So I think there's a presentation issue there with the way that things are presented in Mexico. A lot of that, I think, is the two out of three falls. It's something that I've gotten used to, but I've gotten used to not liking it. Um, it's something that I understand now, but that doesn't mean that I like it, and that's part of the problem. It's interesting that you talk about maybe you prefer um, the Lucha guys when they're outside of Mexico because with Pentagon and Phoenix uh, becoming increasingly more and more based in the, in the United States, it's becoming uh, apparent to me that maybe sometimes I don't like those guys as much um, in AAW, which is weird to me because I really like Phoenix and I really liked him in Lucha Underground when I was watching that show. But in AAW, it feels like a... It's starting to lose its luster a bit with those two. I don't know. That's something uh, there. One thing that we talked about in private before is that one of the more pimped, uh, pointed out feuds in Lucha the last few years, maybe even ever, is Dragon Lee versus Hiromu Takahashi, formerly known as Kamatachi. And... You had some takes on that a while ago that I found pretty interesting. And it was that while these are nutty, spot fest with uh, little to no selling, and they're just doing the craziest shit possible, if this same match happened in Dragon Gate, people would be uh, ripping it to shreds. But because it's Lucha, they're praising it to no end. Um, would you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, um... First of all, I think the the Dragon League Kamatachi series is amazing, and you were ahead of the curve in calling it one of the greatest in-ring feuds of all time. I remember you talking about this maybe even before their their big match last year in Mexico, maybe even before yeah. their Fantastic Mania match. You, you were ahead of the curve on that. Um, since then, I've watched all of their matches from Mexico. I've watched their Fantastic Mania match. Obviously saw the one a few weeks ago at the New Beginning show. And they're incredible matches. I mean, those are two guys that, one, I have the utmost respect for what they're doing because they're almost literally killing themselves. Um, but I can't help but feel like the people that are praising this and that don't like Dragon Gate are just watching something else. Um, and it's not supposed to be an us-versus-them argument. I wish people liked wrestling in general. I wish I liked Lucha so I could watch more of it. And I wish the people that liked these matches would watch Drangate and enjoy it, because that would be more fun for all of us. Um, but Drangate, especially in its modern incarnation, I mean, if you saw a, a Torimon tape in 1999, you might have an idea of what Shima did 20 years ago, or what Dragon Kid was like in 1999 but this is a promotion that has evolved and it has a style that continues to evolve and it's not 
balls to the walls action all the time. It's not full of no selling. Yeah, I don't think it ever has been. Um, Drangate six mans, most of them have a clear function to them. Once you see one Drangate six man, I hate to say it, but you've seen most of them. There's a clear style there where two guys are going to get the shines in the match. It's going to be six guys in the match, but two guys are really going to stick out. It's going to be their match and they're leading their teams. I don't understand from the perspective of, oh, they don't sell. They don't know how to sell. Oh, Yamato didn't limp at the right time. Those people are the ones praising Dragon Lee versus Kamatachi when, you know, those matches are amazing. And I love what they do. But from a technical aspect, they're not technically proficient. They are dropping themselves from all points of the earth, basically, to hurt each other. But it's not like we're seeing that damage later on in the match. It's just a lot of spots and spots and spots. And I don't think Dragon Gate's ever been that promotion, and especially not now. I feel like um, a good example would be, like, if you're over here praising Dragon Lee versus Takahashi, you know, I'd expect you to give the same chance to something like Flamita versus Jimmy Susumu for the Brave Gate. Like, like what was that, from 2014 or 2015? Yeah, that would have been Dead, Dead or Alive 2014. Yeah, and I would think maybe if you're praising that match, you would give that match a chance. But, yeah, it is something interesting. And one thing about Dragon Gate that's always uh, stuck out to me, there's always a clear distinction in your heel group and in everyone else. And in Lucha, there always has been a clear distinction between the Rudos and the Technicos. And because Dragon Gate is so heavily inspired uh, by Lucha, I mean, do you still appreciate the, I guess, clearness and who's supposed to be the bad guys that you get from Lucha Libre? Yeah, that's something that stuck out as I've watched more Lucha, um, partially through PWO2K, uh, partially from Lucha that people have has sent me. Uh, part of that just from going on YouTube and just seeing what I can find is that I really enjoy that dynamic. Um, I think Rudos are... 1,000% different than Drangate heels, uh, but it's something that I enjoy, and I like that distinction. I wish there was more of that in, in American wrestling, actually, where there are clear bad guys and, you know, not evil mustache-twirling bad guys, but in the way the match is wrestled, you can tell there's a stylistic difference between the good guys and the bad guys, and I like that aspect of Lucha. And... In the fallout of uh, the Greatest Wrestler Ever project, uh, you turned in a ballot, and we're almost a full year removed from that. Would there be any changes in how many Lucha guys you might have, you may have on your ballot now that uh, you know you've watched some more of the stuff, or like, or you still feel the same? Like maybe like Negro Casas is on your list, but no one else, or is there more people that you would consider? So when I submitted my ballot last year, Negro Casas was the only worker that I had on my list that his work from Mexico and Mexico only made my list of 100. Um, since then, I would consider El Dandy. Um, and he, he's the only one that's really stuck out to me, but I want to watch more classic AAA. Um, I want to watch more uh, Preta Morgan Jr., I think I got that name right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's Parada. <laughs> Maybe. I, you know, I took two and a half years of Spanish and I do not remember a word. Um, <laughs> pronunciations have never been easy for me. Um, 
no one's jumped out at me. I've tried with Atlantis. Atlantis was someone that Alan Forel, who is the man, host of the DKP show, great guy. Um, Alan and I see eye to eye on most things in wrestling, more so than Joe Lanz and I. And people know that Joe and I are, are buds, and you know we write for the same side. And Joe made a similar talking point on Takahashi versus Lee last week on the Voice of Wrestling flagship. Alan's someone that loves Atlantis, and we talked about it in. I just don't understand Atlantis. Him and Ultimo Guerrero just so happen to be two guys that I think there are a lot of footage out there for, and so I watch a lot of those two, and I I just don't get it. And I've tried, and I've tried. They're two guys that if I submitted a bout of the 500 greatest wrestlers ever, Stalker Ichikawa is going to finish ahead of those two. I just don't get what they bring (laughs) to the table. Okay, that one hurts because, uh... (laughs) (laughs) All right, because, uh... I can get Ultimo. But Atlantis is, like, the most likable person. <laughs> That's the thing. People are, I mean, I've heard many different reasons for why people like Atlantis. And I watch him, and I see him just sort of be awkward. I Atlantis will do these dives, and, like, he's a bigger guy, so I guess it's supposed to be graceful. But I'm just going, oh, God, I don't like the way that looks at all. It just, <laughs> there's nothing about Atlantis that I've ever gone like, yep, that's the one. That's the guy for me. But then again, I mean, I like my luchadors smaller. I like them quicker. I don't want to see grappling in my lucha. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, that's why I love someone like Flamita. I mean, Flamita is technically proficient. He can chain wrestle. But I'm looking for a faster pace style. I'm looking for the flips. I'm looking for more of that. And Atlantis is not going to give me that. Now, since I uh, just brought it up with um, Sam in the first segment, you talked about you know what's harder to get into. Um, what's harder for you to watch? Is it... Would it be Lucha or would it be something like Shoot Style, where it is a lot of grappling? Would Shoot Style be harder for you to get into, or is it still Lucha? I actually, there's Shoot Style stuff that I really like. Um, I like Tamora. I love Yoji Anjo. That was a discovery during the Greatest Wrestler Ever project. I mean, he's someone that doesn't have really any historical value outside of the hardest of the hardcore fans, but I think Anjo's an amazing wrestler. Um and there are shoot style guys that I can at least enjoy uh, because with shoot style, I think it's different from even like I pick on Timothy Thatcher a lot. Look, he's he's the world champion of the biggest indie in the world. And I think he's been a complete failure in that position. I'm sure he's a nice guy. There's work that he's done that I've liked, but I pick on him because of the position he's in. These shoot style guys have a fire and a charisma to them that someone like Timothy Thatcher doesn't for the most part. And so that's why I sort of dig shoot style. And with that, I think shoot style is presented in a way that is similar to Puro or to – it's a more familiar presentation experience. So I think Lucha is much more harder to get into than a UWF or a Rings or whatever. Going back to the grappling thing and how in your Lucha you may not be, may not be that into that, uh, one person that I really love and that I think is going to go down as one of the most uh, – beloved luchadors in this circle of wrestling fans is uh, Echicero. So uh, are you someone that isn't that into Echicero, even like because he's like a Matt-based guy? Uh, what's your opinions on him? I've seen maybe two or three Echicero matches in my life, and they've all been fine. I can tell it's not for me, because I don't want to slam him and say that he's not talented, because he, there's a market there and he has talent. That's one of those where I, I can fold my cards and go, you know what, he's just not for me. Um, 
that's not the style that I'm looking for. And I think Hechicera actually does a better job of, of not looking as phony and, and Lucha grappling as I think some people do, which I know that that has to enrage some people that I mm-hmm. think Lucha grappling just, I mean, it looks silly to me. There's a lot of, you know, and I'm not someone that criticizes strikes or that criticizes a lot of cooperation. Um, I'll never forget the time after Mochizuki versus Shingo, which I think is one of the best matches in wrestling history, that someone didn't like the match because they didn't like Shingo's punches enough. And I thought that was the most absurd thing I had ever heard. I couldn't believe that someone took that away from that match. But I watch a lot of Lucha, and I'm going, they're, you know, they're holding hands. I mean, these are guys that are just cooperating with each other, or they're throwing silly kicks and these silly strikes that I can't get into. I think Hechicera limits that. I think he's talented. He's just not someone for me. To go back to your point on the the cooperation and the grappling, uh, that's something I've kind of thought about the last few months when it comes to Lucha and his grappling because people always talk about world of sport when it comes to like fancy mat work, and Lucha has a lot of that too. So... Would you say you have the same problem watching World of Sports stuff, or is it still like Lucha is what sticks out for having cooperation or maybe even some silliness with their grappling? It depends with World of Sport. Um, I think someone like Jim Brakes or a Steve Gray, they do it in a way that it makes sense because I, I love the way World of Sports presented if you put a World of Sport match on an Evolve, I would hate it. But World of Sport in that atmosphere, with that crowd, in that time period, I think works perfectly. Because to me, it's so absurd that it works. Um, Jim Brakes is a guy who I look at him and I think he probably has a laboratory somewhere where he just thinks of all these crazy concoctions of <laughs> evil things he can do to his opponents. And I like that because in my mind, he's trying to outsmart his opponent and he gets them caught in all these various different ways. Maybe it's a cultural thing with me where I just I don't understand what these luchadors are going for. And maybe that's it. Um, But for me, World of Sport, for the most part, the high end stuff, it's never been an issue. It's something that, you know, World of Sport, something that on surface, if if you know me, you would think, oh, that's not really my thing. But when I sit down and watch World of Sport, a lot of it I really like, actually. But I think a lot of that is the presentational aspect of this is so far removed from any other form of wrestling that I can parachute into this universe and I understand what's going on. And just to wrap up the segment, I'm curious now that since you've been trying more and more to get get into Lucha and understand it, do you have a favorite lucha match necessarily i don't know if i do or not i don't want to answer that because i haven't seen enough classic triple a stuff to give what i would feel like would be a, a a diligent answer a proper answer um yeah i don't know if i could i like watching um i try to watch at least a cmll match a week um i love the volador jr cavanario match from last year um it was, I believe, the second match they had. Um, if they had to, that sounds right. They had two um, matches. Um, you're, so you're yeah, talking about like yeah. the title match they had, or? Yeah, it was the one where uh, one of them jumped off the stage, and I thought that was just tremendous. All right, I want was, yeah. more. <laughs> I want more of that. <laughs> if Luchadors start jumping off stages, I'm all in. Um, I really like that match. Historically, 
I don't think I've seen enough to give a fair answer on what my favorite Lucha match would be. If you're listening and you have Lucha that you like, that you think I would like, or at least you want my opinions on, please send them to me, because I would love to watch it. And like I said earlier, I'd love to like Lucha. Um, I probably don't have time in my schedule to fully fall in love with another style of wrestling, but I'll take that risk, because I would really like to like it, because there are people that are passionate about it, and there are people that seem really into it. I just haven't found that thing that I go, yes, I'm into this, and uh, it's a struggle. All right, thank you for being on, Case. Uh, you are a busy man, so can you lay down some plugs and any other things that you have coming up? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case. Um, I don't tweet as much anymore, uh, but, you know, Dragon Gate coverage, I'm your guy there. Um, you know, I watch most New Japan, All Japan, Big Japan, Noah that makes tape. Um, I'll be live tweeting some Ring of Honor stuff later this week. I've got VODs to watch. Um other than that, listen to the Open the Voice Gate podcast for your audio Dragon Gate coverage. Read my reviews for Dragon Gate and AAW on VoicesOfWrestling.com. And if you're someone that is a Dragon Gate fan or looking to get into Dragon Gate, be on the lookout for the 2016 review and the 2017 preview ebook that uh, Voices of Wrestling is putting out for Dragon Gate. Uh, the Open the Voice Gate crew has put a lot of hard work into it. It should be coming out before Champion Gate, which is going to be March 4th and 5th. It should be out around that time. If not, still be on the lookout for it. But if you're looking to find a gateway to Dragon Gate, tweet me, go on the Voice of the Wrestling forums, or buy the ebook, and we'll hopefully have all the answers that you need. All right, and once again, thank you very much, Case. And on to the next one. And with me next is one of the more recognized names when it comes to people in the Lucha Libre community or anyone that you see talking about lucha on a regular basis online i have rob viper rob how are you dude okay how you doing i'm pretty good i know you're a little under the weather so i don't want to keep you too long all right <laughs> so with the theme being lucha i've asked everybody how did they get into it but i'm especially curious about your start because you're from Canada, so I want to know, how did your start with Lucha come about? Yeah, that's actually, well, when most people find out I'm from Canada, they have that same reaction, like, where did you discover Mexican wrestling? And for me, it's because we, we, we have a channel called Tele Latino, and back in the mid-90s, they got a lot of programming off of the Mexico, what was known then as Scalavision. I guess it's still known as Galavision, but it was a different Galavision back then. And I was just basically a WWF fan at the time. We didn't really get WCW here. And we were I was watching exclusively that. The only time I was exposed to Lucha Libre would be like in PWI magazines. But one day it just happens that my dad was a big soccer fan and he was watching soccer on the Mexican channel. I hated soccer, could never get into it, so I would always ignore it. But one day he just happened to leave the TV on after a game he was watching and I came to turn the channel and I found they were showing this weird wrestling that I've never seen before with these guys wearing masks. And at the time it was EMLL, but I didn't know that. I just I just knew that just these guys I've never seen before doing moves I've never seen and I couldn't understand a single thing the announcers were saying, but it just it appealed to me because it was, it was so different. You know, when you see Lucha Libre right away, it sticks out that this is not WWF, this is not any, this is not Japan, this is not anything you've seen before, right? 
Yeah. So, so I got hooked on it just watching the color. It was mostly at first the colorful characters and the big moves they were doing because you weren't seeing that in WWF at the time. It was WWF was more big, strong guys doing a very slow, much slower style. So now that we got the beginnings, you've been a part of the Lucha community and a known figure for a while now. I know when I first joined Twitter, you're one of the first people I followed that were, that were talking about Lucha Libre. So all these years later, what about Lucha has kept you so engaged and so committed in following it? That's a good question. I mean, uh, the same things that from the beginning. I mean, I love the style. I like the high-flying aspect of it. I especially like the good versus evil aspect of it with the, you know, you pick a side, you cheer for it, whether you're a fan of the good guys or the bad guys. There's no, uh, there's rarely, like, you know, in the United States, especially on the independent scene now these days, they have the, the chance that everybody loves, especially the, both these guys yeah. or all these guys, if it's, you know, if it's more than a, if it's a tag match, you go into or fight forever chants like that. Whereas in Mexico, it's more, you chant one guy's name, or you chant the other guy's name. You have to, it's the, the line is drawn. Basically you pick a side and you, you cheer for that. You cheer or you boo the guy you're against. I really like that. It's very, uh, it's like a sports atmosphere for me where you have your team and you cheer for them no matter what. And you support them. It's a very good atmosphere. And that's what keeps me involved in Lucha Libre. I have the guys I like, the people I support. And for me, a match is more fun when you're not watching to analyze it from a quality perspective where you're overanalyzing every single move of the match and the selling and the psychology and all that. For me, it's more fun when you can just shut your brain off and just get invested in, I want this guy to win. And I don't uh, like I'm a technical fan, so I don't want to see any cheating going on. I want to see a clean match. My guy prevail at the end. It's uh, just, it's the simple stuff. That's what I'm into when I watch. Just out of curiosity, because I know that you've uh, been to some shows in Canada. I think you've been to AW before. Would that be correct? Yeah, I went to AW in, I believe it was June when Aerostar and Drago came in. So would you say? Between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, would you say Mexico is your favorite place to go to shows at? Oh, without a doubt, yeah. All right. So the real question here that I wanted to ask you is that a lot of people that I know in this Lucha Libre bubble aren't huge fans of the flying. They more like the brawling, map-based kind of guys. And I often see some kind of maybe not resentment, but pushback against that style or aspect of Lucha Libre. And seeing that, I believe that you're one of the more prominent defenders of the high flying. Um, I guess I want to know where do you stand on the aerial maneuvers and high flying and its place in Lucha? The pushback you're referring to is the pushback against the high flying style? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't see what the negative aspects would be when it comes to the high-flying side. Like, what kind of pushback? What do the people say? I think it's more along the lines of a, maybe just like it's kind of unnecessary, it's too fancy, they could just do more basic things. Like, the kind of criticism you usually see of 
any flying wrestler that they're doing too much. And because the high flying has been a staple in Lucha Libre for so long, I just want to get like your perspective on people saying, you know, they're not as high on it as the other aspects of the style or genre. Right. I mean, from the beginning, Lucha Libre, I mean, one of the biggest stars from the beginning was El Santo, right? Yeah. And El, San- El Santo was, he was considered a high flyer for his time. I mean, he did cool stuff off the top rope, which, you know, in the 1950s, you just jump off the top rope and do a flying headbutt. That's considered high flying. And I guess it's uh, it's part of the superhero aspect of Lucha Libre. That's what Lucha Libre is built around, these masked fighters doing all the stuff you'd expect a superhero to do. And when you watch, if you've ever been a fan of like cartoons or anything involving a superhero, the superhero is always doing the incredible stuff to make you go, wow, and they leave you in awe. That's the whole aspect of a superhero, I think, at least. So I don't see why it should be any different when it comes to Mexican wrestling. Like the fans come and they want to see the high flying. I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about brawling, mat wrestling. It's nice to have different stuff like that on the show. But at its core, I think Lucha Libre is associated with high flying. And I, I don't understand why people would say it's a negative. Like, are, there's no documented case. You cannot put together uh, any sort of factual, there's no factual evidence that a high-flying style leads to shorter careers or people not lasting as long. A guy like, you take Atlantis, for example, he was he was considered, uh, he was a guy, like you just said, people online would say, oh, this guy does too much. He could, be do, he could do so much less and get away with it. He, when Atlantis came around in the mid-80s, he was considered one of these guys that people, the old-timers at that time, would look at and be like, why is he doing this dive over the top rope? Or why is he doing this moonsault off the... He doesn't need to do that stuff. He could just keep it simple and slow it down. But look, Atlantis is still going strong these days. I, mean, I just saw a show the other day where it was just a totally nondescript show and he did a dive through the ropes to the floor. And he's like 54 or 55 years old now. He can still go. And there's no, there's been no documented case of him ever being missing an extended period of time due to injury. I feel like everybody's body is different. Some people handle it. Some people can't handle it. And it's not the style you work. I mean, you know a lot of U.S. wrestlers who don't work high-flying style and their careers ended way early, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just how it works. It's every it, Wrestling is dangerous at its core. That's always been my contention when people bring up that high-flying is dangerous. And I, I, I would much rather see a show where there is high-flying than a style where there isn't high-flying just because that's just how that's just how that's what appeals to me. That's what got me, I mentioned it before. That's what got me into Lucha Libre, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I can't see high-flying ever being removed from Lucha Libre, and I can't see someone being an actual – hardcore fan of Lucha Libre who's against high flying. It just doesn't compute to me because it's such a such a such an aspect of the style that's so important. It's like if you were a pure uh, Japanese wrestling fan and you were watching that and people were doing the stiff strikes, I have a feeling that like there would be it'd be hard to get engaged in that because that's just such an aspect of the style that the fans are trained to accept. Right. So you mentioned earlier about people overanalyzing things and being critical of things like psychology, like limb selling, uh, anything like that. Do you think maybe when it comes to high flying, people are a little bit too critical and 
over analytical. Obviously, it's a show. This is a show called Psychology is Dead. So, to some extent, I do care about those things. But do you think sometimes we get a little too caught up and don't realize that the high flying is fun and something that does make the crowd care? I think so. I think high flying appeals more to the very casual audience which is the opposite of the audience that, for example, is listening to this podcast or that you interact with on this podcast because they can appreciate the little things in wrestling. Like you could pick out the the psychology, whereas the casual fan, you know, they're not going to notice that, wow, that punch is really good or, hey, that, that arm work is really, that ties in with what they did 20 minutes ago in the match. The casual fan is more going to be like, oh my God, that guy just did a crazy double corkscrew off the top rope. I've never seen somebody do that or a human being pull that off in a wrestling ring. And for me, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Somebody put it in a graphic once, but this guy, Jose Fernandez, who's a good friend of mine, and was one of the first guys who like taught me a lot about Lucha Libre when I was starting to get into it. He pointed out once how he went to Mexico once and he showed, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but somebody wrote this like uh, think piece about something that a wrestler did during a match once and pointing out that what the psychology was of why he did it and how he was so smart that he put it in this match. And Jose Fernandez actually showed this written think piece to the wrestler and said, what do you think about this? Like, is this what you were going for? And the wrestler looked at it and just shook his head. Like, it's really nice that this guy pointed this all out, but I had no, I didn't even know I was doing anything like that. I had no intention of doing that in the match. It's just something I did. And it's cool that this guy, that's what this guy got out of it. But when he watched it, but that was not my intention at all. And he just kind of laughed it off. So for me, when I think about, you know, something like that, and I think sometimes people, they see what they want to see. And I understand, you know, that's cool and all. If that's what you get out of wrestling, who am I to say anything against it? But sometimes I think people just see what they want to see. And it's very easy to pick on the high flyer, the high flyers and high flying style. Because if, if a wrestler is doing a high flying spot, and they, they mess it up. It's very easy to see that because they'll fall on their ass or right. the spot the spot will fall up. I mean, there's no way to hide it. If you're going for a high-flying move and you fuck it up, excuse my language, if you screw it up, they... I don't care about the cursing. Okay, I, I, some podcasts are different, but like <laughs> if they fuck up the high-flying move, it's very evident. Whereas, I'm just going to pick two guys at random example, Zack Sabre and Marty Skrull. If, if they're rolling around on the mat doing mat wrestling... It's something they play. It doesn't come off. You're not really going to notice it because they just grab a limb and they do another move. Right. Or if Ishii and Shibata in a New Japan ring are headbutting each other, throwing strikes, and they're supposed to go transition into another spawn. It doesn't come off well. How are you going to know if they miss it? They just go right back into the strike exchange. It's 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 unfair to me sometimes that like. You know, the high flyers are taking a risk. That's the whole point of high flying. You're taking a risk, you're putting your body on the line, and you're setting yourself up for ridicule if you're trying a double springboard and you slip and you fall down. There's no way to cover that up. There, you're, it's very easy. to. It's Sometimes I think it's just too easy to pick on guys who screw up something like that. At some point you have to, like, say, you know, let, let them get away with stuff like that because – they're, they know the risks going in. They know that they're going to get made fun of if they end up screwing up the spot. Cut them a little slack at times. That's that's always been my point of view. One thing I'm curious about is you have this Twitter account where you 
post these like wacky lucha gifts, <laughs> and some of these things that I see are pretty remarkable. I think you posted one earlier of Ricky Marvin doing a backward springboard from the middle rope to the top rope into a hurricanrana. Yep. So, out of curiosity, just to wrap this up, who would you say are some of your favorite or the best high flyers you've ever seen in Lucha? Obviously, there's going to be some obvious ones like a Rey Mysterio, but what are some of your favorite or ones that, you know, you just think are just flat out breathtaking guys to watch? Wow, man. Uh, I love that account, by the way. I love the fact that you mentioned that because I, I just did it for my own amusement, basically, one day because I was just learning how to make gifts and <laughs> it's it's caught on. I don't know. People are interested in it. There's even some wrestlers who see spots on there and they're like, damn, that's amazing. I got to try that. And then I see them do it in the ring and it blows my mind that, wow, this guy saw the gift that I put up there and now he's doing it. Because some of those things that you've posted are like ridiculous. Some of the minis that you've posted and just general stuff that you, I mean, other than maybe like Flamita, Dorada, Aerostar, like no one is doing this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, I was telling somebody this the other day that there are so many spots that just you see once and then you never see them again, or there's spots that people used to do and that for some reason they just get lost in time. And it's cool to see, you know, I'd like to see some of these spots get brought back because innovation in wrestling will never be dead. And when you look back and you see these people doing these cool spots, you know, you can either copy it, which is, I have nothing against copying spots, or you can expand on them. Like to go back to, and to go back to your question about like guys, I mean, obviously, like you said, Ray Mysterio Jr. has always been my favorite. You know, forever be my number one. He, I think, consider him the most innovative flyer of all time. Ricky Marvin at his peak. I mean, he was doing insane stuff that people forget about now because he yeah. slowed down over the years. But like, like that gift that you mentioned, that was the, that's like the Valiente, the Valiente special where you jump backwards to the top rope, and that was the first time I ever saw somebody do that. That was six years before the Valiente special ever came along. There's a guy named Turbo, who very few people know about. But I, I posted I a gift. Turbo. Yeah, he, he wrestled in Dragon Gate for a time, too. He's a Skite student, and he never really got any press. But this guy used to be insane and do some of the craziest stuff you've ever seen. I posted that gif of him where he does, like, this crazy spin-around Frankensteiner. And it, it went, like, not viral, but viral for me, where it got, like, 200, 300 retweets people were just amazed by it and that was a spot that from like 10 years ago that all of a sudden now people are like holy shit how did he pull that off guys like aerostar Mascara dorada they're just top of the line inventors of doing crazy stuff there's a guy named uh, el matematico he's the guy who i'm sure if you're even just a regular lucha fan he's got the numbers on his mask yeah 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 he's he came he was around in the late 70s early 80s and unfortunately there's such little footage of him out there but from people I talked to in Mexico, he was so beyond ahead of his time that if for some reason any footage ever came out of him, he would be doing stuff that even people these days can't even dream of doing. So for me, that's like incredible at how some guy can do stuff like that back in the day, back in the days before where, you know, high flying is more prominent now than it was back then. I would love to see stuff like it, stuff that he could do if footage ever came out. Uh, who else? Uh, Valiente is another guy who's been doing crazy stuff, although now that he's gotten kind of bulkier, he's kind of slowed down. But here's the thing about Valiente is that even though he doesn't 
do the same stuff he used to. The fact that he does the Valiente special so flawlessly still at his age and at his size is the most remarkable thing. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I think I asked him about that once when I met him, and he said it's more muscle memory than anything now. His body's just so trained to pull it off that no matter how big he gets, he can do it. That's the trick that a lot of wrestlers have told me that even if you if you think you can't do something, once you do it the first time, it just becomes instant muscle memory. You can pull off anything because your body's just familiar with doing it. You just got to keep practicing and eventually you'll figure it out. When it comes to the minis, my all-time favorite mini is Suki, a.k.a. Max Mini in WWF, and also Mascarita Dorada, a.k.a. Yeah. El Torito. They do incredible high-flying stuff that just, to this day, blows me away at how good they are and that's one of the current aspects of Lucha Libre that kind of makes me sad is how the minis division has gone away from focusing on small guys like that and they've, they've used more bigger guys because I think the small guys, just because of their body size, they can pull off stuff that regular-sized guys can't even dream of doing. Yeah, I know seeing some of the Mascarita Dorada stuff is like the amount of rotations he'd get on a Tilt-A-Whirl. And, like, the speed at which he's going at was always one of the most amazing things. And it sucks that post-WWE, I haven't really seen much of him because people really don't take minis that seriously. But he's, like like you said, incredibly talented. And not just minis, but maybe just one of the most talented wrestlers ever when it comes to flying. Definitely. It's, uh, it's amazing to me that WWE even let go of him in the first place because I would think that somebody like him... Imagine if, because I think in WWE, I'm not a huge WWE fan, but I think the only person he actually wrestled was uh, Hornswoggle, right? Yeah, as far as like actual matches where they got time, yeah. He might have had like some six-man tags or some house show stuff, but as far as just singles matches, only faced Hornswoggle. Right. I mean, can you can you imagine if they would have actually signed somebody like a Piero Tito, for example, or a Demu, somebody who could actually base for him? They could... For the next 10, 15 years, they could have them working house shows and just, that's the ultimate kids act. You put that in an opening match or the mid card to like, just for time filler, that's, that's the touring match you could take. It will never get old because right. it'll always be interesting. I can't believe they couldn't find anything to do with this guy. And like you said, after he left WWE, where is he? I mean, he works a lot of stuff, but it's not really well known. And uh, he's coming out to, to Orlando this year. I know that he's booked on a show that they're doing on Friday night in uh, in Orlando at, like, some nightclub. I know he's working that. Is it, like, a WrestleCon show, or is that, um, like, some random Lucha show that's running? He's coming to WrestleCon, and he's also working on that other show. It's a show, uh, God, he's going to kill me because I was just talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who put it together. I know Conan's involved with it, but Conan, it's not Conan show. It's uh, it's some rapper, but I can't remember. I'm not really a rap Wale? fan. But some rap. No, 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 that's different. That's the night before. Okay. Hold on. Spiff. That's the name of the rapper. It's Spiff. Okay. He's, putting on, he's putting on a show, and he's going to have a couple matches, which could include Masquerita versus Demus, I think, actually. Don't quote me on that. I just know they're both on the poster, so I assume they're facing each other. Right. Is there any um, other guy I know you're pretty vocal about being one of the uh, biggest Volador Jr. supporters out there? <laughs> yeah, I love Volador. Like, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit, really. And he's a guy that, for what, like 15 years now, has been consistently good. And everything he does is just really smooth. And he may not be like uh, Flamita or Dorada, 
or Aerostar, but the guy is pretty fantastic in that area of wrestling as well. Yeah, I actually have been working on uh, trying to put something together. I'm not really a good writer, but I've been trying to put together something to support Volador's career because he's been around. He started in CMLL in like the year 2000, I think. He was super skinny and even wore a T-shirt because he was so skinny he didn't want to show it. But his career, if you look through his entire career, he's never missed time due to injury. The longest time I think he's ever missed would be like two weeks at most. That's insane. Which is that's insane. Yeah, considering the style he does and all the all the freak accidents that have happened to him in his career. Like he did a corkscrew dive once and landed right on his neck in a total accident, and he was back ten days later and for an injury that you would think would keep a normal person out at least like ten months. He, if you look through his career, he had the beginning run where he started to like become popular in two thousand one, two thousand two, then. All those famous Havana Brother matches in CML, he was a part of those with Virus and Ricky Marvin. Yeah. Then he was Mystico's partner when Mystico was having the when he was like starting the boom period in Mexico. Then he was like a top guy from 2007, 2008, and from 2009, 2010, he became a main event player, having all these great matches. We're talking like 17 years now, where he's been on a on a weekly basis, providing at least two, three times a week, having great matches and. I don't think he gets the credit, like you said, for his longevity and the amount of great matches he's had in that time. And now he's a top, legitimate top guy. Like people, he's one of the faces of CMLL. They try to make the company more of a the brand over the wrestlers, but he's managed to make himself separate where he's a top guy. And now he's working more New Japan. He's going to make his ROH debut coming up this month later at the Supercard of Honor in Florida. I'm excited to see who they're going to face him against. Hopefully he gets a good opponent. Because that could be a breakout match, and you never know. There could be some big U.S. Indies call calling him. Yeah, he's a guy that if you put him in a U.S. Indie just for discussion's sake, like an AAW, maybe a PWG, if he had the right eyes on him, that he could really break out. And that's insane to say for a guy that's 17 years into his career. Right, he's like mid thirties right now, and he could just this could be his breakout. This could be his chance to get out there. Just because don't know, don't think people really much knew about him before, but he's just suddenly breaking out with the, the new Japan appearances. He's a super worker, and he he really likes working with the foreigners. He had the good match with uh, with Osprey at the uh, in the best of the Super Juniors, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, he did. He had good matches with a lot of people. I thought with Ricochet, Osprey. I remember mm-hmm. liking his Liger match. He had a good run. Yeah, I think he's he'd fit in perfectly with those type of guys. Maybe they'll do it again this year in the best of super juniors because they've got they've got a great, great crazy great juniors division, especially with now Dragon Lee working there more. Yeah. All right. So Dragon Lee is one of those. Sorry to drop. Dragon Lee is one. Dragon Lee is one of those guys, just like with Cavernario. Where no offense to Dave Meltzer, but. Every review he does with those guys, he brings up all oh, these guys. They're never going to last that long working their style. <laughs> he always he always talks about Cavernario's knees. Yeah, that bothers me a lot because I know Dave watches the Friday Arena Mexico shows, and I know he watches the big stuff from New Japan. But he's not watching as regular as like me and you guys like us are, where we've seen Cavernario work these Monday matches in Puebla or Tuesday matches in Arena Mexico, where he's not doing the splash to the floor. And he's not doing crazy dives, but he gets by just fine. And he's going to have a perfectly fine long career. I assure you, his knees are going to be fine. And in 25 years, he's going to still going to be in the ring wrestling the same style. 
because he can do more than the flying splash to the floor. That's why I hate when Dave says it and people parrot it. They just copy everything Dave says as if it's fact. I mean, Cavernario will be just fine. Like, I compare him to a guy like Pirata Morgan because Pirata Morgan, back when he was uh, a young guy in the, in the 80s, he was taking crazy bumps to the floor and doing wild stuff, taking bumps over the top rope that you can't even imagine. And he's still wrestling to this day, 25, almost 30 years later from when he started his career. And he's a great brawler. He has fun matches. You know, he gets by just fine. But in the 80s, people were saying the same thing. This guy's body is going to be broken in no time at all. I'm sorry, but Pirat is doing just fine right now. And that's another one, like, when people always mention Negro Costas. For some people, Negro Costas is, like, the best wrestler to ever live. But keep in mind that he's been taking, like, that same bump to the floor for, like, 30 years now. And every time he does it, it amazes me because it's like, dude, you've been taking the exact same spot for so long now. Like, everyone's worried, like, oh, Negro Casas doesn't need to do this. I remember at Dos Legendas last year, he took the Sunset Flip Bomb to the floor and people got yes. scared. <laughs> Love that spot, yes. People got, like, so mad at him. Like, you're 56 <laughs> years old, why would you do that? Because he's Negro Casas. He doesn't, like, he, he's going to be fine. Right. I mean, he's... He's a perfect example. He hasn't missed a long time either with injuries, and he's been around forever. He just he trains so hard. He's aside just because of my bias, I guess, but I think Rey Mysterio Jr. is the best wrestler ever. But Negro Casas, easy number two without a question. And he does even like you mentioned that sunset flip bomb to the floor spot. He was actually the first person to ever take that in Arena Mexico. It was one of the more famous matches. That you have to go all the way back to '95. It was him against Hijo del Santo. And they actually ended the match where Santo did the sunset flip bomb and Casas sold it like he was knocked out. And the crowd got so mad at Santo for injuring Negro Casas, which actually led to late a couple months later, that's when Santo turned uh, Rudo. I was wondering if I that saw, was actually when that was before or after he turned Rudo. The, the the spot match I just described? Yeah, when you were mentioning when you were describing it, I was wondering if that was before or after. That was before. That was what led up to it because like right. Santo quotation marks, excuse me, quotation marks, injured Negro Casas. He was actually fine, but that was the whole thing where the crowd got mad at him because in that time it was babyface or technical, he called El Santo against Rudo Negro Casas. And when he injured him, that's when the crowd support started to like switch. Like, you just injured our guy, Negro Casas. He's the guy that represents Arena in Mexico. And the crowd started to boo him more. And then three months later, we had the thing where, or not even three months, like two and a half months later, that's when, Santo went full Rudo against Negro Casas, which eventually led to their big mask versus hair match. Like you said, that the bump by Negro Casas where he gets flipped to the floor, there's there's stuff he takes that even I and you know I have no like I believe that every wrestler is in charge of their own body. They should be able to do whatever they want without us telling them what to do. But even I see Negro Casas take stuff like this, and I just shake my head. <laughs> At his age, there are wrestlers who work with him who I've talked with, and they tell him like. Dude, you don't have to do this. You can just slow down. You can, like, we'll take the bumps. If it's a six-minute attack, we'll do the big stuff. And Negro Casas is the one who says, no, I want to do this. You know, age doesn't matter. I will I will wrestle the same way now that I wrestled when I was 25 years old. And I have so much respect for guys like that because I see the opposite too much, where there are guys who are his age and they literally show up just to get paid. They don't want to do anything in the ring. Right. So I have so much respect for older guys like Negro Casas and Black Terry, who they want to help the young guys and they want to set an example. The most like glaring example, we already mentioned like the sunset flip bomb, sunset flip bomb, but the uh, 
match with Dragon Lee from 2015. What is like, hold on, like, I forget, like, Dragon Lee is what, like, 20 at the time? Mm-hmm. And Casas is, like, a good 30 plus years younger than him, and he's still taking the Dragon Lee Hurricane Rana spot to the floor. Like, yeah, I just love Negro Casas, but this isn't a Negro Casas um, podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he, the thing is, Negro Casas, I mean, every time you watch his matches, he. He he wants wrestlers to work. He wants to work matches just like any other wrestler would work a match. So he wants to when he would work Dragon Lee, he wants to work the Dragon Lee match. When he works Volador, he wants to work the Volador match. So many times you see the opposite, where a young guy is forced to work the old man style yeah. because the old man just a sign of respect. Yeah. You know, you have to listen to what the old person says. All right, so I think we covered everything, Rob. I really appreciate you uh, being on in your current physical state. So <laughs> anything, uh, your Twitter handle, your podcast, anything you want to plug before we uh, sign off here? Uh, Rob Viper on Twitter. Also Lucha Gifts, G-I-F-S. Uh, for any fun spots you want to see, I update that whenever I feel bored and just want to put something up. And also come to WrestleCon this year if you're heading down to the Orlando area. we got a great show. We've got a lot of matches that haven't been announced that I'm sure you guys are going to love. There's only like 300 seats left, so and they're all general admission. So if you want to get in, now's the time to buy a ticket because we'll make another announcement on a match soon. And I'm sure once we announce that, the rest of the tickets are going to be gone. And I think that's – oh, I do Como Estas podcast once in a while with Cubs fan, usually around our Mexico trip times. I just went to Mexico myself, had a great time. Try to list, Please listen to that. That's on – you can get that through the Cubs fan website. And that's about it. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you very much, Rob. And on to the next one. And with me next, you may know him from his two shows on the MLW Network, one being Eastern Lariat with Striga, and the other being Lucha Talk with Lager Fever and Alfredo Esparza. What? I think I, well, that's, that's, did I say that right? Yeah, Alfredo Esparza. Yeah, Alfredo Esparza. I hope he doesn't get mad at me. But I have Dylan Harris. At least you didn't call him Esperanza, like in our our show. Um, You're doing good, buddy. But I have with me Dylan Harris. Dylan, how are you? Man, Quentin, I'm so happy to be on here. And, you know, when you talk about the shows I've done in the past, and I've always been happy to do those and things, but this is the first ever kind of guest starring uh, appearance I would have on a podcast. So I'm really happy it was with you. I was telling you off air how much... I think you're really one of the good ones of wrestling fandom, and especially in Lucha Libre. So I, I really appreciate you and this show right here. So I, I can't wait to not only contribute, but also listen to myself back after the show is done. <laughs> I thank you very much. And what I want to start you off with is everything I've asked my guests so far is Lucha isn't a thing that when you're in the States that you're kind of born with. Maybe if you live in Texas, maybe if you live in uh, California, you may see some lucha on television, but for people that live on maybe the Northeast and the Midwest, like it's not something that's ingrained in us. And I remember that you got into lucha pretty early, and that's kind of a unique background. So, can you elaborate on when you got into lucha? Yeah, yeah, no problem, Quinn. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Memphis and the western side of Tennessee, or Middle Tennessee, or anywhere in Tennessee, really. Is not known for its Latino population, but it's actually very underrated when you think about it. And 
as I said before, as I've told you and told everybody on the podcast, I grew up in a kind of rough neighborhood, but my neighbors were a Mexican family. And I used to hang out at their house when I was around uh, 10 to 12 years old, I would say. And a funny thing happened that they turned on the TV and it's always on the Spanish channels, uh, Univision or Telemundo. And, you know, one day I walked in and I saw Lucha Libre on and I was like, whoa, this is like pro wrestling, which is what I do. Obviously, you know, in the United States, WWE at the time. But we sat down and watched it and it was a great show. You know, I, I vividly remember stuff like Hijo del Santo in the mid 2000s, the mystical boom around that time. So really mid 2000s is when I started. And I, I would also like to say that another thing that got me hooked was that after Lucha Libre was on, they would always play a telenovela afterwards that we'd also stay up and watch and it had very beautiful women on so that that definitely played a big role in my love of lucha libre but i fell out of it after a while but i came back you know when years later after i grew up and i i it's hard to really say what drew me to it originally but it just seemed to be like great wrestling just like ultimo dragon who was one of my favorite wrestlers as a a kid i thought everybody was kind of like that especially ultimo guerrero he and Ray Bucanero were my favorite tag team of the 2000s because I always yeah. thought Ultimo Guerrero was like Ultimo Dragon's brother or something like that when I was <laughs> uh, which is not true at all and even in not any even, way how not, they wrestle. Not even close. No, no, they are not in any way uh, related. But when I was uh, 10 to 12 or whatever it was, you know, I was still young to the business then. So I thought, hey, he's Ultimo, Ultimo Dragon's Ultimo. I love these guys. And it didn't hurt that he was also an amazing wrestler at the time. So I, I really loved watching it back in those days. So fast forward, you're not a kid anymore. You host a Lucha Libre podcast. And since the Lucha Libre community isn't as prevalent online as it is in Puro or U.S. Indies or even European Indies at this point, when the Lucha podcast pops up, you know it's out of love and respect for the genre. So all these years later, what would you say keeps you close and keeps Lucha Libre in your heart? Like, why do you still watch it? You know, that's a great question, Quentin. And when I started to think of the the concept for Lucha Talk and what it would be, it's no secret, you know. I mean, you host a Lucha Libre podcast yourself. And the market is not exactly booming right now for Lucha Libre podcasts, especially when we started. But I feel like when you think of stuff like, and I really think uh, Conan on the MLW radio network really deserves a lot of credit for helping bring stuff, bring popularity to AAA. Obviously with Lucha Underground, that really gave a boost to Lucha, kind of the shadow of Lucha, I would say, but not, you know, the, the actual impact in terms of true mexican lucha libre has been you know so so thus far definitely improved from where it was but what keeps me going is not just the love but it's funny because this sounds going to sound like a cheesy answer but to me the emotion of lucha libre is what separates it from other styles when you see a mask match and the differences between that and, and other countries that would feud over a title or uh, blood feud or anything like that to me the mass match itself means so much to the fans and to me because 
And other companies, no matter who it is, no matter what title you have, no matter who you are, they can book this title to garbage. They can have build up a great storyline and give a champion their first world title and then take it away from them two months later. And it would, the, the, the title would be devalued and it wouldn't matter. But in a mask match and a Puestas match, no matter what happens, if he, whoever loses a big Puestas match, and, and Lantis and La Sombra, for example, you know, if La Sombra loses every single match for the rest of his career in NXT, that doesn't change that match or the moment of that mask match that happened. You know, they can never rebook it. They can never take it away. And although some people like Silver King try to take it away and go back under a mask, but that's very rare. And the, the emotion of these mask matches that I see and the emotion of any matches really keep me going. And I, I also think another smaller imprint of why Lucha Libre means so much to me personally, and I would consider it probably my favorite style of all, of all wrestling, even though I'm more known for pro res, is because I feel like a lot of the wrestling nowadays is kind of becoming homogenized if you can kind of catch my drift and it's they're taking elements all from each other in good ways and bad ways but lucha libre to me is still on a whole separate plane and when and certainly when you think about cmll or indie lucha i really feel like it's its own style it's very unique very you know it's just something different than all the other styles whether it be brit res pro res or american wrestling at this point and that's that's really i think the full answer why i love it so much even to this day one thing you mentioned that I'm glad you did is that the uh, passion and emotion that you get from Lucha that can't really be replicated anywhere else. And I remember on a previous show that I did a guest appearance on that I said uh, the Joshi scene in the <laughs> 80s and 90s in yes. Lucha are like the only ones where you get that like raw emotion where the crowd is like almost like dying to see their person win, and if they lose, they, like, burst into tears. Like, when someone's favorite luchador loses their mask, they yep. burst into tears. Like, just like, say, uh, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with this match, but Manami Toyota versus um, Toshio Yamada from... Uh, I'm very familiar with this match. With, from 1992, I believe. And yes. Hair versus hair. And, I remember this very vividly. It's one of my favorite matches, by the way. Yeah. So like, I just want to say that. You know, just tons of emotion. And when you look at, you know, the attempts done in the United States to do a hair match, it's, you know, it's like comedy. You know, it's not like yeah. a big deal. But in Joshi and in Lucha, like it's like some big, monumental, devastating occasion for somebody. So I'm glad that you mentioned the passion when it comes to Lucha Libre. And it's funny when you think about it, you know, even the hair matches in Mexico nowadays can get really heated. Obviously, with a women or girls, it's it's, it's kind of obvious that hair would be more important. But when you re if you remember that match between Kamatachi and Maximo last year, yeah. the first thing you see after that match is Kamatachi with this hair that we all know will grow back eventually. We cut to Kamatachi fan and her friends all crying that their hero lost this hair match. And I just thought, that's amazing. You would never see that. And another great example, too, is in fan participation is the Delta and Galactar match we yeah. saw last November when after the Rudo had a screwy finish that cost Delta his mask in theory, we saw fans rush the ring to tell the referee that, no, yeah. no, he cheated. And when will you ever see that in WWE or 
even even New Japan or Pro Res, I just I can't remember that ever happening. Yeah, that's raw. And, that's like that's yeah. like real emotion. And on right. an episode of Surprise, we talked about that. It's like where else in wrestling right now could you get that kind of emotion where the fans are literally about to riot because the Rudo cheated and is about to rob a Technico of his mask, and the fans have to feel like they have to get up and right this wrong because they can't let that slide. You know, you're not going to get that anywhere else. You know, you're totally right on that one, Quinn. It's it's a real shame because a lot of that has really gone by the wayside, but not in Lucha. Lucha really, as I said, remains its own thing kind of in Joshi. There, there are a ton of matches. And also I do enjoy the kind of side appearances and the stories of the, the family feud. I was just thinking about this when we thought about last year, uh, the, obviously the big trauma one and Connie's lupus match where we had the post-match where the bloodied Connie's lupus uh, asked his girlfriend to marry him right yeah. after the match. And the thing, like, in a moment like that, in a moment in a mass match where you see Ultimo Guerrero, you know, her, her, his wife crying, everybody going crazy. Like you said, I think you touched on it. At the end of the day, a title match or anything they book is great, can be great. There's no doubt about it. But when you see the emotion in Lucha and a great Lucha match, a great Lucha moments, that is real. And that, that's why they can't take it away, no matter what happens, no matter how much bad booking. And CMLL and AAA both are guilty of this, along with many indies. But no matter how much bad booking there is, they cannot take those moments away from us as fans. And that's what I love about Lucha Libre most. So the major question that I had for you yeah, is yeah. that something that I think turns some people off when it comes to Lucha is that it's sort of, macho show-offy tendencies i've likened it to lucha it's like the only real place where like you know gladiators actually exist or spartans or something like that where they feed off the audience and are doing these stupid things and pandering to the audience because that's what you're supposed to do like you're playing up to your crowd and i'm just want to talk to you is like what is the history in place of that kind of macho attitude in lucha and like why is that so pivotal to getting in to the lucha libre culture or understanding the scene you know it really all starts with the surroundings of lucha libre and the mexican culture itself you know when and this is something that this isn't some new phenomenon or anything like that by any means you could go back to the 1950s. There's a match from 1952, and one of the biggest drawing matches of that era was not from, you would think it would be El Santo or Black Shadow or Blue Demon or Gory Guerrero or someone like that. But no, at Plaza de Toro, the Bull Plaza, we had one of the biggest all matches of all time with Medico Asesino at Gardenia Davis. And this match was a battle between masculinity and femininity in many ways, as Gardenia Davis was one of the most prominent exoticos of the time. And I really feel like the manlyhood and the macho that you talked about is prevalent in the Mexican culture. And it definitely shines through Lucha Libre. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And even if you see something like, I know you'll know this, but if you watch a lot of Lucha Libre, you'll notice a move they do, which is a slap to the chest. Not a chop, but a slap to the chest. Yeah. And in the old days, those weren't necessarily meant to be a painful offensive attack, but also because it's a call out to your manhood. 
more importantly with that. And nowadays, it's also it's equally a call out to your manhood, but also painful with guys like Penta around who do the, those moves. But in general, I really think the culture plays a big part of that. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but I also think that Lucha Libre, more than any other kind of style, is really based around the tenets of boxing. Yeah. And you could look, you can look at that in the, their weight classes, you know, that they, they, they did, you know, and it really goes back to all the weight classes for beforehand. The Mexicans in boxing wanted at welterweight and middleweight and lightweight, while the foreigners were all bigger and wanted them at heavyweight. So the Mexican people loved those styles of wrestlers. And that's what brought it. That's why Mexican lighter weight wrestlers are bigger in Mexico than heavyweights more now. And, you know, that macho culture has obviously existed in boxing for, you know, for ever. So, and CMLL and Mexican wrestling in general has always followed boxing closely. If you look at the history of Lucha Libre, it'll be right next to Mexican boxing. And I really believe that that plays a big part of it as well, Quinn. I'm glad you mentioned the slapping to the chest. Because in prep for this segment, I was thinking, like, you know, Mexico has had some really heated chop battles. <laughs> yeah, they have. They're not known for it when you think about it. You always think of, like, Kobashi. Yeah, I was about to say, or, like, the first thing I think yeah. about is, like, you know, obviously the most famous one would be, like, Kobashi versus Sasaki from Destiny 2005. Like, that's, yeah. like, the famous chop battle. But, and people always associate that with pure wrestling. So it's like, they'll talk about it when it comes to Big Japan or the New Japan Strike Exchange or... Because it's like a typical trope when it comes to Puro that people point out. But in Lucha, that happens just just as often. But people don't talk about it. Yep. Yeah, I know. And I, I don't really know why. You know, and j- just to backtrack for a second here. But I think another good thing about Lucha Libre is the differences in the match types itself. Yeah. Which, and you can see this where a Lucha Libre title match, although everybody knows the titles really aren't that important, but... When they're built up to have the match itself, they're treated with importance, and they wrestle it, you know, as a really technical match, you yeah. know. And it goes back to the '40s and '50s when Luthez would come back to Mexico, and you know, when EMLL at the time joined the NWA, he would come around and they he'd show them how an NWA title style match would work, and you know, not just physically but also psychologically. And really, even to this day, if you look at something, someone like an Atlantis. When he was having big mass matches, not big mass matches, big title matches, you know, five to ten years ago, I vividly remember a match of his he had with uh, the departed Hijo del Paraguayo, rest yeah. in peace, you know. And Atlantis really, really showed that Pero was not that kind of wrestler to do a, a technical style match like that, but Atlantis did it that way because it was a title match. And the difference between that and a mass match is huge because when the mass match comes, it stops being a sporting event and it becomes a grudge. And then it's becoming, you know, even if it's a technical mask match, like something between Blue Panther and someone, even if they're using technical holds, it almost becomes a game of one upsmanship. Not yeah. just, you know, not just, uh, you know, who's trying to win, but I also want to prove that I'm superior to you. Even if it's, whether it's by chopping you or locking in holds. You know, sometimes a lot of people say Lucha Libre submissions are convoluted, but that's where it comes from. Is It really is a, a game of one's upsmanship more than anything. And that manliness really flies in the face of a lot of other, you know, 
things nowadays it doesn't really matter as much in something like american wrestling but in mexico that tradition really carries on and those and that's just a great example right there the technical title matches or the violent mass matches you know and i really i'm really happy to see that those traditions still continue and i really appreciate the macho quality of lucha libre and the one-upsmanship of it you know and i i really think that that is a great thing when I'm glad you mentioned that the it isn't just violent, grudge, yeah. hateful one-upsmanship. Sometimes right. it's just two guys who want to prove who the better wrestler is. And they'll bust out these intricate holds that... I think one thing that annoys people about Lucha is that these guys will like work to put in these holds, and then they'll let them go. But the way yeah. I always interpret it is that they're not putting in that submission to make you tap they're doing it to show off just to show you like, if yeah. I wanted to do that, I could have ended you right there. Right. Yep. That I think that's a really great point. And, and you, you know, you see a lot of submissions in Lucha, a lot of the complex submissions also take a toll on the attacker as much as the victim, so to speak. If it's something like uh noodle Legonero that, you know, that blue Panther uses, yeah. you're tying an opponent around your arm and then using your other arm to lift him off the ground that's going to take some strength out of you, you know, and just to do this complicated move, you know, letting it go. I, I've never really felt that as a problem. You know, another thing I, I want to just call out real quick that I don't know if anyone else has talked about is that a lot of people always say something to the effect of if someone gets a submission in, they'll tap out right away. Like there, there'll be no struggle like there is in pro res or American wrestling. But to me, I think that that is much more realistic yeah, and I like it. I like it that way because it, what there is no fighting to the rope or anything, or very rarely there will be. And it, if they do do that, it's also very important as well. So I really appreciate that that trope as well. I really love the way submissions are handled in Mexico in general, and I think what you said was another great point of why. Yeah, the thing with and that goes back to lucha just having its own unique feel is that yeah, you mentioned that like submissions, like it'll always be overly drawn out and dramatic with cameras right in their face whenever yeah. someone is like crawling to the ropes or something like that. Yeah. In Lucha, whenever we're going through the first two falls, a submission can end it out of nowhere. And, yeah. you know, it gives it a real distinct quality and a uniqueness that to this day, even though Lucha is going on, you know, 200 years old and even further than that, <laughs> if you want to trace it back to even further, it's like, they still maintain like some of those qualities that just, you know, anything can happen. Yeah. I mean, you, you are totally right. And you know, that really brings up a great thing about trios matches that they have in CML. It's very important. The two out of three falls, the captain's falls, you know, I really love those styles of matches because not only does everyone get their hand raised, like you said, sometimes the fall can be quick. Sometimes it can go long. You know, you never know. And I really feel like if everybody wants a good example of what great trios match psychology is, I know this is veering off topic a little bit, but I I would really recommend two teams called Los Brazos and Los Misioneros de la Muerte from the 80s, as they really invented a lot of the, the tropes and the Rudo beatdowns that are still used today, you know, and they had so many ways to do it. And we're just amazing workers in general. But again, that's just another thing that was taken from then to today. And that you could see will go 
you know, from time to time. And I, I really love that, that style that, like you said, anything can happen. It doesn't just feel like in other wrestling. Another thing that I really hate about modern wrestling these days is that every match doesn't feel like it's really going anywhere as any kind of sport or telling a story. It's just who will hit their finisher first, you know, yeah. that that will decide who will win the match, uh, if not multiple times in Lucha Libre. That's rarely a problem. There's many, many different ways that could use a match, many, many different submissions that could be used by nearly anyone. And I think that that goes back into the old days where they, they used to train you in amateur wrestling, Olympic-style wrestling, to even be allowed to get your Lucha Libre license in Mexico. And I think a lot of that effort and that work, that, you know, that work ethic, I would say, really goes through in their matches and their wrestling, even to this day, even though obviously that's not as prevalent today when you see some people that may not have great technical ability in Lucha Libre. But, uh, but uh, I just, I really enjoy that style. Like you said, that anything that, that can happen flow of Lucha Libre. You know, like this isn't even, the person about to mention this isn't even like a luchador, but we mentioned the unpredictability and having different ways you can win a match and it doesn't have to just be hit my finisher. Like one yeah. of my favorite wrestlers is Zack Sabre Jr. Because Zack Sabre Jr. is a guy that has like about six different um, submissions he can put you in. And then two or three different kind of pin combinations he can put you in. So it's always interesting to watch him because he's a type of guy that can just always hit you with uh, something different every time you watch him. But to move on, we talk about the yeah. machismo in Lucha Libre. And... Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, who are some guys that you think really embody that swagger, that confidence that is so essential to Lucha Libre? Who are like the standout guys when it comes to that uh, macho quality? Yeah, I, I would say today, I think the first name that really popped into my head was Roosh from CMLL. Uh, these days, you, you talk about somebody who really has that Rudo style to him, although he is still somewhat baffling, bafflingly booked as a technical, uh, he really has that style. And I think when you talk about somebody who's, who emphasizes hard hitting in your face, smash mouth style of wrestling, you know, Roosh really comes into that, but not just him. You you look at someone like Ray Scorpion on the Indies. I think he really, uh, you know, he really utilizes that well. And, you know, and when it comes down to it, and a lot of people will also say something to the effect of, you know, in Arena Mexico, a lot of the fans always cheer the Rudos. And that's more of a roughneck style. Technical and Rudo isn't always just a straightforward baby face and heel, as in other styles. Technical means technical, and Rudo is rough. Yeah. And that emphasizes their style. And even if a Rudo, you know, an example would be like Negro Casas in his feud with said Rouge, really brought out a lot of that style. And there's a popular saying in Mexico, and it goes to the effect of, you know, el que no tranza no avanza. And that would mean something to the effect of you can't go forward without cheating, pretty much. <laughs> so, you know, you can see why some a lot of the fans of Lucha Libre would sympathize with these roughneck style, macho kind of rule breakers of that effect. Uh, obviously, in the past, I think Hijo de Paraguayo was a, a really big name for this. Someone like or even, or even MS, like, or, or even like Paro Senior is like a good like a good yeah. name for that too. Yeah, yeah. MS One, Sangre Chicana would, would be two two guys that come to mind. But there are so many names that really emphasize this style um, of macho ness, and that really got you know whether they were technical or rudo at a given time, 
they were beloved by fans because they they exemplified that they exemplified that they would fight for you the mexican you know and i think that's a big part of where that comes from as well again not to bring it back to mexican culture but i i do believe that is a big part of it i mean yeah go ahead i mean like Mexican culture itself is a big part of it because this is where yeah. Lucha is based. This is where Lucha is originated. This is where it gets all yep. of its you know, influences from. So yep. that stuff is always going to be important. And one thing you mentioned about the, you know, they value the guys that go out there, leave it out in the line, fight for them. Right. And that's an interesting quality because when you look at guys that were dastardly, evil Rudos, that would just yeah. cheat and just bloody up the, te- the technicos and all these things. You think it's, you think it's a Tanico, Sangre Chicana, yep. Pero, uh, MS1. Like, there's so many guys on Parada Morgan, Emilio Charles. Like, so many Yeah, guys. those guys are definitely, definitely guys I should have named. Like, great, great points, Quentin. Like, the, like, these are guys that were, like, evil to the core. They would just yeah. do anything it takes to win. But when they turned them Tecnico... They're beloved. Like all the <laughs> stuff they did didn't happen. Like, you know, you know, uh Satanico like beating up El Dandy and making him bleed everywhere didn't happen. You know, all these things that these people did like didn't happen. I think that comes from respect, that you kind of respect the Rudo more because he does show that down and dirty side. And that it probably is a quality in why some of these technicos Simolels tried to turn out over the last few years failed and eventually had to turn Rudo like Sombra, yep. like Rush, because they didn't respect them the way they respected the Rudos. You know, like you really hit the nail on the head right there, Quentin. Uh, and you see a lot of things now, and even we saw it last year in a match with Dragon Lee and La Mascara, which was the main event of the anniversary show for CML. The fans leading up to that match largely took La Mascara's side, despite nearly, obviously, a lot of us as American fans and outsiders really thought Dragon Lee's a way better wrestler than La Mascara. At least I thought that. See, see, like, <laughs> but, oh yeah, I agree too. Like, this, that's yeah. an interesting point because when you look at the La Mascara versus Dragon Lee feud, like it's not like La Mascara was wrong. Like, yeah. Like Rush fucked them over, so it's like okay, you won't fight me, so I'm gonna go get your brother. Like, like in that sense, he's not wrong. He's just going out there and trying to get revenge. Yeah, and also another thing that. A lot of the young technicos have a problem with in Arena Mexico these days is that the fans, especially if you're in Dragon Lee shoes, and everybody knows Roosh is a main eventer, and nepotism is a big issue in CML, especially among fans' spe- speculation. If you're a clean cut technico like that, they don't necessarily think you've earned it. You don't the, stand a the chance. Way, you don't stand a chance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, they, they don't think you've earned it the way someone like La Mascara has who and funnily enough, he when he got pushed as a Technico was booed and hated because he didn't earn it. And oh. nowadays and he hasn't even changed that much from back in two thousand eleven as a as a wrestler. But he's respected because he went through that and came through it to this Los Gobernables and they, they they took his side and we saw it in that match and You've seen it for decades on pack, and we'll continue to see it in all likelihood in Mexico. Yeah, and that's interesting. Like, I already mentioned Sombra and Rush, like, when they failed as Technicos, getting booed so much that it's almost like, you know, know, people talk about Roman Reigns, you know, getting rejected by the fans. Go watch some Sombra and some Rush and see how those guys were treated. Go watch Clean Cut Rush 
and see how he was treated. He's not the same guy. Like, oh, God. Yeah, he's not the same guy. And it does come back to an interesting point of when someone kind of gets that swagger, that, you know, pardon me, but ungovernable way of acting where you're not going to let someone control you. You're not going to abide by the rules. You can do whatever you want. That's cool. And that's a thing that in, in American wrestling, you know, we only just found out, you know, 20 or so years ago with Steve Austin. Like, you know, that was a new phenomenon when Steve Austin was a heel that was getting cheered. You know, we saw, yep. it, we saw it in Japan where even though there's sometimes not that clear heel or face dynamic, say like a guy like Ricky Choshu who was invading all Japan, like, you know, you can, you know, feel him. You can feel like you can cheer for Ricky Choshu. But well, a great, a great, a great example of a Japanese guy that would be like that would be Akira Maeda yeah. back in the eighties, who was a real like renegade type guy. Everywhere he went, he everyone hated him, but he, the fans just took to him because you know he did things his own his own way. You know, whatever he wanted, he just did it, and that's just a lot of people like that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's been going on. It's been going on in Mexico even longer than that, and that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. where it's like, you can point to a thing like where the antihero was a new wave. In American wrestling 20 years ago. Well, Mexico was doing that in, you know, 1980. Like, the, there were these anti-heroes that were very successful and very popular. Even before that, all the way to the 50s. Yeah. Black Shadow and Blue Demon. You know, uh, these guys were the Rudos going against the our hero, El Santo. You know, but they were also big movie stars in their own, own right. and had their own big, huge fan bases that, you know, and, and everyone respected them. And I think that's where it comes from in a lot, a lot of ways. From then to now, the the fans just respect the guys who really they feel like have earned it. And the Rudos going all out. Uh, I think also something that was told to me a long time ago, this not necessarily in Lucha Libre, but just in wrestling, was that the babyface are the be- are is always the best wrestler, and the heel is someone not good enough, but he has to cheat and do bad things to get you know, to get over on him. But, at the same time, that also implies that although someone is not as talented, they still work hard and do things their own way to get that win. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it, especially someone from Memphis, as that's a, that's also a big thing in Memphis. Uh, a lot of heels would, or a lot of, even babyfaces would do heelish tactics, you could say. Uh, I, I think that's a big part of both here and in Lucha Libre. And I think that's something that gets a little understated by people who just look at things more simplistically than they, they should. But like you said, you know, all the way back throughout time in Lucha Libre, the anti-hero definitely a big part of where things are, are have been and where they're going. So to kind of wrap up here, yeah, I have this interesting um, question is that when – the Technico decides to get down and dirty and brawl. And, yeah. you know, we've seen it. Like, El Dandy's a guy where he's been a Technico most of his career. But you can see countless Apuestas matches where he's bleeding all over the place. And he would do whatever <laughs> it took to win. You know, the famous yeah. one is 1990 against Satanico where he outrudo Satanico. We've seen him bleed yeah. all over the place in the triple threat with Casas and Santo. We've seen him bleed against Charles, against Parada. Like, so we've already seen El Dandy get dirty, and that's why people respect him so much. But it seems like some of these younger guys, like because it's a different era, you can't do blood in Arena Mexico and you know all that yeah. stuff. 
they don't have the chance to get down and dirty like that. And would you say that's a thing that not being able to exhibit that swagger, that fortitude, that macho quality that we talked about, does not being able to exhibit that hurt these young wrestlers in Mexico? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's a really, really great point when you put it like that. You know, and a lot of times the Rudos will still, you know, obviously, especially now with the Ingo Rodables and stuff like that, you know, they'll they'll do bad things to these Technicos. And the Technicos, at most, you may see something like a Technico may try to rip a mask a little, you know, or, or something like that. But nothing really over the top or anything like that. I, I definitely do think it's a problem because, you know, look at it in a, in a real life scenario, you know. Now, if you were to just just fight someone and beat them down and leave them bloody. Everybody would think that would be bad. But if this person who, you know, if you didn't do that, rewind, and this person not only, you know, slapped you around, stole your girlfriend, and took all the food out of your refrigerator, and then, you know, at that point, you have to be wondering, like, man, come on, do something. You, you know, that, that's what I would be saying to my boys. You know, like, so if somebody, you know, you know, takes your cat pretty much. You got to take their dog back. And in Lucha Libre, the Technicos really don't get a chance to do that. And it's unfortunate with the with the powers that be in CML at this moment are really against that. But, you know, I think the Technicos are trying to go their own way. And they're doing the best they can with what they're given. I'm trying to be excited. You look at someone like Dragon Lee, all the way down to the undercard with someone like Soberano. You know, even people that work the Puebla instead <laughs> and things like that, like uh, Magnus, will try will try to wow the crowd in their own way. But if they're going to be the next star, and we've seen it time and time again, whether it be like all the guys we mentioned or even guys that are still technical right now, like Teton has never been able to get to the level that I think he should, you know, yeah. personally. Uh and, you know, Angel de Oro never could get there. You know, so many guys that could really you know, you know, move the, up. You know, you know, the, you know, Dorada in his time there never was on yep. that level. Like, you know, exactly. all these amazing wrestlers. And maybe it does come back to being indicative of CMLO as a company because we've gone through it. Like, you know, just in the last you know, seven years at this point, like twice with Rush and Sombra, two guys that they were high on and wanted to push to the moon and got completely rejected. They give them brudo gimmicks and they become major stars it's like at some point you would think that company would see that maybe it's you know our problem with creating these new young technicos like dragon lee like a titan who should be you know in that upper tier and you know i we made this joke a few weeks ago on lucha talk but we were talking about this horrible piroth and diamante's old main event and we were talking, and we were saying, what if Paco Alonso just doesn't know that it's not the old Piroth in there, who is like a, a really great wrestler? He still thinks it's that it's that guy, and they're giving him a big payoff. They don't know it's it's Roosh's dad. So that's sometimes how it feels like. They don't even pay attention. And AAA's version of booking Technicovas, nearly as bad. Psycho Cloud, their top Technico, is basically the sting uh, oh, in God, WCW, AAA. Uh, you know, that's not that's not going to get anybody over. But you know who did it right? Look at that match that I mentioned earlier with Trauma One and Connie Slupas. Trauma One, beloved Technico. Did they make him? Did or did he keep doing? Did he try to be a you know pander to the crowd and do a, a fan friendly style? No, 
he got right back at Connie's Lupus, busted him open, and you know did what he needed to do to get that win. And despite everything being put in a neck brace, that was such a great match and storytelling. I know you've talked about it on yeah. various shows, and I have too. But that's a great example of a Technico that is that does it the right way and that got over with the crowd for those very reasons that we've been talking about. And I really think people could learn a lot in CML and AAA and anywhere else from Trauma One's push last year in IWRG that got so over and really helped him out personally. So I really hope that they were paying attention. I wish they were, and I wish they would use some of these lessons that we're talking about right now. They should listen to this show. <laughs> Give Paco this show, Quentin. Please send it out to him. The one thing that, you know, is interesting to me is that, you know, we don't really get the guy that can go in between effectively. The only yeah. one that can do it is Casas. Like, yep. he, like, he can walk that line, and people will do nothing about it. And yes, Casas is like a one-of-a-kind wrestler. And there have been yep. other, you know, luchadors who have, like, went from Rudo to Technico, Rudo to Technico. But no one like Casas has, like, constantly been in the middle. And I'm just wondering, like, is there anyone that could possibly ever do that again? Like, is Casas just that one of once in a lifetime talent that can be a Rudo and a Technico whenever he wants to, or is it something that you can try to cultivate and you know create a new star? Because like, I just don't see it. You know, someone I think really has that potential in them right now in CMLL is Cavernario, yeah, who wrestles a Rudo style, but also has enough spots to where he could be a fan favorite and his character is extremely likable, much like Casas. And I think he's someone that could, if they wanted, but the thing is though, even if he were to work a Rudo, he would just get cheered by the crowd again. Like, yeah. like we mentioned er- earlier uh, for those reasons. So uh, much like Negro Casas. So I think he's someone that could definitely kind of go in between if they handle him right and don't do anything too crazy, <laughs> which remains to be seen as he has a hair match uh, that many people are, are buzzing about right now that could be in the works but could you imagine cavernario without hair not not just just not to drag this off topic but could you imagine that you know uh, no I, I i couldn't like that that's like a terrible thing to imagine like yeah there's like certain people you no know, like imagining them without hair just kind of like bugs me like i'm not yeah. sure if you watched dragon gate but like um yeah a few years ago yeah. there's a guy named yamato who got his yeah, hair cut. And it's like, oh no, Yamato, you lost your hair. Like that was like your entire gimmick. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah, for him, even and remember when BB Hulk was the dancer and he was also bald. Yeah, I, like... And he wore a wig to the ring, which was very funny. <laughs> yes, yeah, like even like, you know, in those places you like you can't imagine like someone losing their hair, but Cavernario was like, who has like much hair much longer hair than those two, like Nah, I can't I don't even want to think about that. I also speculated that last week we saw at the amazing Parejas and Cravelays final that when Cavernario went to his parents in the crowd, they should have been dressed up like cavemen as well <laughs> to, to really get his, his, his Rudo. That could have really helped him as a Rudo. Just turn him into this savage man, uh, you know, completely just like Cavernario. We, 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 we have the actual Fred Flintstone in the crowd. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. That would be brilliant. Uh, if, they, if they did something like that, turn him into a raging lunatic, I think he could totally be a Rudo character if they went uh, all the way over the top with it. But as he is right now, I think he's very popular uh, with with a character. But he's definitely someone I think, among anybody that I could see, I think he would probably be near the top in CML especially. 
All right, so that's it, Dylan. I think we've yep. covered everything pretty well. Um, I want to thank you a ton for being on, and since you're such a busy man, I would like you to plug all the shows that you do <laughs> on the very on the very big network. I'm so so thankful and so grateful to be here. First of all, I, I really appreciate you reaching out to me to be be here for this, and I really can't wait at all. Honestly, you told me the guys that are on the show, a lot of great names here. I'm really honored to be in with them so if you want to check me out if you've enjoyed what you heard for some crazy reason yes mlw radio network was crazy enough to give me my give me my own show and it was about lucha libre check out lucha talk we're on itunes stitcher iHeartRadio, all sorts of places like that with me and my good buddies liger fever who you know from twitter know from his tumblr he does great translations of interviews and spanish everything in lucha libre really and also, my friend, as we mentioned from the top of the show, Fredo Esparza, not Fredo Esperanza. If you hear the intro <laughs> to our show, it's not that. Uh, it was not our choice, guys. Our fingerprints were not on that intro. But uh, he's a really great mind. He runs LuchaWorld.com, one of the biggest Lucha Libre websites for years and years now. And he's just a great guy. I really love doing the show with those guys. Also, if you like Japanese wrestling, we, we delved into it a little bit on here with the Joshi Talk and the Kira Maeda and everyone else. But check out my other show, Eastern Lariat, with my good buddy Striga, the German rapper, as some people know him as. <laughs> but we're, we're going to be doing a show really soon, actually. Uh, both of my shows, actually, we're probably going to be recording really soon. So keep on the lookout for that. Follow me at on Twitter at Dylan Zero, the number zero, 615. And if you're really cool, check out my uh, old we- uh, website, ProResSpirit.net if you want all the updates and results for Japanese wrestling. It's where I got my start, and I still love it to this day. I love MLW, and I I think you're a pretty cool guy too, Quinn. I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, and I was really happy to be on here with you. I think we had a great show, personally. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing this, Dylan. Hopefully, we can have you on for a full show at some point. Maybe we could do a Lucha Talks, a Princess Lucha Super Show. Uh, I would love that. Anytime you want me on, I'm totally down for it. Just message me and make sure it's not in the middle of the day because I might be sleeping with the way my sleep <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Dylan, and on to the next one. With me now is one of the co-hosts of a Lucha podcast called Supresa S. Lucha, a man that I in no way, shape, or form have ever talked to before, uh, Brandon Wagman. <laughs> Brandon. This is our first time ever speaking. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. It's funny though. Like, I don't do many podcasts outside of our Lucha podcast. I've only done a couple, and that hasn't been in almost a year. And my one podcast appearance outside of our Lucha podcast is talking about Lucha. <laughs> But it's all right. It's all right. I love talking about Lucha, so that's always a good thing. And, you know, if anyone listening to this wanted to book me for their podcast not pertaining to Lucha, I pretty much like almost everything. So uh, I'll, I'm pretty sure I'll plug my stuff later. But, yep. All right, so... Getting out of the way that you host a Lucha podcast, we talk about Lucha all the time. Um, really, what is the force that got you in the Lucha? 
because All right. as, as I've like talked, as I've like touched on with in other segments, it's like in America, it's kind of like weird getting into lucha because like it's on TV, but then a lot of the times we don't get it, we don't like really see lucha until we're like you know going online and stuff. So how did you get introduced to it? All right, I I mean, I think almost everyone who's American, you know, Rey Mysterio. Eddie Guerrero, you know, I got into wrestling after Invasion Angle, so I didn't see the cruiserweights at at their peak at the time. But you know, I had Rey Mysterio DVDs where you know they he they showed his WCW matches with Psychosis, Juventud Guerrera, and you know the other cruiserweight matches, and and so I and I knew what Lucha Libre was about. Um, I have actually, I remember as a kid, I tried watching Lucha Libre, but, you know, for whatever, you know, stupid kid stuff, anytime I heard Spanish, I laughed at it, which was like, you know, it's just, you know, stupid kid stuff. And I, I, I did watch, try to watch Lucha as a kid, but I, it's just something I couldn't really watch because of the language barrier. But, you know, after I got out of wrestling, um, in right around once I hit high school, and then I got back um, into wrestling. First WWE, then I got into other stuff. I always like something about Lucha Libre really piqued my interest. And Lucha Underground uh, comes on, and I'm introduced to Pentagon, Phoenix, Drago. But the thing that really hooked me onto authentic Lucha Libre was the dual match duo matches of Atlantis the past couple of years with Ultimo Guerrero and La Sombra. And, you know, before that I would cherry pick La Sombra a lot. So it was just a culmination. But after that La Sombra match Atlantis and La Sombra match, that was one of his last big matches before WWE, that's when I got hooked big time into Lucha. That's like all right, I'm watching it more on a full-time basis. And um, it kind of just the style, the different styles with Lucha just resonate with me more than, say, Piero does. Yeah, that's an interesting one because usually when it comes to uh, like American wrestling fans or even European wrestling fans, when they seem to branch out and watch more different styles of wrestling, Puro seems to be the easiest gateway, and Puro has its own subtleties and differences, but essentially American-style wrestling and um, Japanese-style wrestling aren't that far apart, whereas in Lucha, there are a lot more nuances and different rules and things like that that take some getting used to. So for you to say that Lucha resonated more with you is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I like Puro. I, I mean... I got into Piro with New Japan and I started watching other stuff, but I don't watch Piro full time. Like, you know me as well as almost anybody in our wrestling bubble. In our wrestling bubble, how often do I really talk about watching Piro? Very rarely, right? But, like, Lucha, if I don't watch, if I don't watch a week or two of it, I still catch up with it. And it's just. Something about the culture, some, I guess this is, you know, we, I know we, we talked beforehand about what I like, what I like about Lucha. 
some there's a lot of things with it that I really like, which the culture around Lucha, you know, the mask, the mask, the you know, people say wrestling's like comic books, and Lucha like a superhero comic books, Marvel, DC type stuff. But Lucha kind of amplifies that. You have the mask, the clear hero, clear villains. Some of them, well, some of them. Uh, are unmasked, like, evildoers and stuff like that. And they fight, then they fight and fight and fight till at the very end, they have a Poistas match to reveal the identity, just like comic books, where a lot of times, if the villain wins, he unmasks the hero, or the hero unmasks the villain. And that's another thing I like about Lucha and the Poistas match is another thing that resonates with me with Lucha because in American wrestling and Japanese wrestling and American Indies, the big, the big thing is the title match. The title match, you know, uh, wrestling championships, it's up to the viewer if the, the title is prestigious, whether it's the WWE championship or the IWA, IWGP championship in New Japan or down to your regional local indie, that could be prestigious to you. But, you know, it gets passed around. It's all ultimately, it's not, when you really think about it, it's not as big. But in Lucha, especially the places match, especially mask on mask, that's big because they're hiding the identity. You're, You're unmasking the hero and villain. Or villain. Um, once they've unmasked, the identity is forever out there. Very rarely do they go back under a mask. Recently, you know, the the Dostoyevsky's uh, main event, um, Piroth unmasked again. But ultimately, to me, that just resonates with me because, in a way, it's kind of the most real thing in wrestling now where we we know what it is but it's something about it that just draws you in yeah because that's the thing is that like obviously as technology progressed and as society has progressed like we're just more and more in the know when it comes to our forms of entertainment and wrestling is one especially where fans are constantly um i guess more aware of the things that are going on but in mexico you still have this uh, weightiness that goes along with someone's mask because regardless of the time period or um, where we're living, the identity is still very much protected in Mexico. Yeah, and, yeah. especially especially with the rise of social media. And I know there's a couple luchador and luchadoras that have, you know, shown their face before getting unmasked, like um, Australian Suicide, but he's from Australia. So it's not as that big of a deal or a sexy star before she unmasked. And sexy star just doesn't care. So yeah, she doesn't care either. But but by and large, when it comes to social media, it's you know if they post a selfie of themselves uh, without the mask, they'll put like an emoji sticker above their face. You, you know, know, you know, like Dragon Lee when he's like posting his pictures in the gym, like he's never showing his face. Yeah, 
or they will have a snapback right over them where they only see your mouth or whatever. So I guess to follow up on that is, you know, I know why you're followed Lucha, why you're so heavily into it, but what keeps you going when it comes to Lucha? Like what motivates you to have your own podcast about Lucha Libre? What motivates you to keep up with it and follow it? What motivates you to make sure Lucha gets recognition? Like, what about Lucha is, uh, I guess, keeps you invested in it and keeps you um, motivated to keep following? Right now, it's kind of really hard to say because the big two companies are kind of trash. Kind of. AAA is utter trash. They're political bullshit. They're forest fire that will never go out. Um, no matter how many firefighters try to fight it, it's just not. It's never going to go out at this point. And CMLL, they'll do good stuff here and there. And when they do good stuff here and there, it's always awesome. And you know, when they actually try, they they're one of the best, if not the best, promotion in the world. But week to week. CML is just stale. It's very uninteresting. They have bad workers. They have some like they have some of the best workers in the world, but there's also the other spectrum where they have a lot of some of the worst workers in the world. Well, even their best workers, they don't even give them a lot of things to do most of the time. Yeah, like lately, that's kind of been changing a bit. But you know, in 2017, the, like the end of 2016, dude, does is sort of changing a bit but now like we're three we're three almost four months into this year we haven't really seen that yet as much um but what really gets me going in lucha especially right now is independent lucha and the availability of it's increasing and it's you know, a lot of these CML workers, well, they're, they're involved with the stale product. When they go out into, a, like, a super indie or if or just, you know, just local stuff that will sometimes make tape, it's it's refreshing and they're a lot more motivated. Um, they, uh, the promoters that book them know how to use them correctly, and they just have great matches. Um when it comes to historic lucha, you know, it's when you what keeps me going when it comes to giving exposure is it's a lot different from what's today, as you see a lot of bloody brawls in Reno, Mexico, which you know only one occurrence last year in the past decade, decade and a half, you actually see blood. In Lucha, in the 80s, you see a whole bunch of blood in Reno, Mexico, and bloody brawls. Um, um, the, and also, you know, seeing some of the best workers to ever uh, to, uh, step in that squared ring, like Al Dandy, uh, Atlantis, and so on and so forth, that not a lot of people have seen, and that's one I, that what makes me want to, you know, sort of bring that to people and sort of give them an introduction to maybe hopefully go back. Hopefully, a you know, maybe the current stuff isn't your thing, but 
maybe the old stuff is as well. And also, you know, the different styles you have, you know, the, the car crash style that, you know, almost every promotion in the world uses now that, that originally originated in Lucha and kind of got brought up with the cruiserweights and WCW. And you have that, you have the bloody brawls, you have the places match, the title match, you have some of the best technical wrestling in the world. Um, and to ever exist, I think uh, Lucha technical wrestling maestro work is better to me. It's bad. That's better to me than say world of sport is to me. And uh, I'm not much of a shoot style guy, so that doesn't really resonate with me that, that much either. But and I I do like World of Sport, but just something about Maestro work resonates with me more than any other technical uh, wrestling that when it comes to originating. So, I guess the real question for you here is: while people who follow and get deeply invested and go back and look at older workers or deeply ingrained in following the current scene. They know how uh, great in the variety that Lucha brings. But what's interesting is that in the last few years, I'll say maybe since 2002, we've seen a very clear shift in Japanese wrestling having such a clear influence on American wrestling, more so than Lucha Libre has. And... I want to know your take on it is why do you think we've seen uh, such a major uh, and clear influence there from Japanese wrestling while with Mexican wrestling we just haven't seen that? Yeah, it's really weird because when you up until a couple years ago when WWE signed Kenta and Shinsuke Nakamura, there hasn't been a lot of respect towards Japanese workers when it comes to major promotions. Um, you know, before that, it was Great Muda, um, Jushin Thunder Liger in WCW, Ultimo Dragon in WCW, and Tajiri in WWE, but Tajiri was only a mid-card guy. It, none of them held major championships in the big companies the only one I can really give an example is Morishima with the Ring of Honor title. But at the in, but Ring of Honor now is a major company with a billion dollar backers and things like that. But when Morishima won, it was still just an independent company. It wasn't. It's not what it is now. Yeah, that, was, that was a whole ten years ago. Yeah, that was ten years ago. And but when it comes to Lucha Libre, in terms of pushes. We, we when it comes to the WWE championship, we saw two guys uh, in the history. Two guys um, have won the WWE championship that comes from Lucha Libre background, which is Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero. And Eddie Guerrero comes from a family and that knows how to adapt to any style. They uh, American, Japanese. Uh, Eddie Guerrero had a long stay in Japan, so. Or, you, or like, even his brothers wrestled in Japan frequently, like yeah. So, like, so, so, like, so like adapting was just a general, just a Guerrero thing, exactly. And Rey Mysterio can adapt to anyone, but but those are two guys that 
come from Lucha Libre backgrounds that won the WWE Championship, but there's other guys uh, that are more highly regarded other than the three guys I talked about before, three or four guys I talked about before, you know, the trend of the last couple of years with WWE signing. Um, and not only that, Alberto Del Rio, too. That's another guy I sort of thought that, about that. His first run in WWE was pretty good. And he wanted he was there, so we we had three guys from Lucha Libre backgrounds that won the WWE Championship or major title in other places, and the cruiserweights in WCW are more highly regarded than historic historically than Japanese wrestlers. But when it comes to the popularity in Lucha, I and versus Puro. And especially when the influence, I think it's mainly because Puro is, um, while American style and Puro has subtle differences, as you said before, but they're very similar in structure. It's a lot easier for someone to watch and take in a Puro match than a Lucha match. And that, that translates to wrestlers because... You know, while wrestlers can study tapes, you're gonna. If you're a wrestler, you're gonna study tapes that more to your liking than stuff. You you might watch other stuff, but you're mainly gonna focus on things you like. You know, it's just you know. Let's let's think about the when the indie boom started. You know, who were your guys at the forefront? You have Loki, Brian Danielson, and Samoa Joe, and. Early on, they, though, obviously, Brian Danielson would go on to um, train under Regal and get a little bit more European influence in his style. But if you watch early Danielson and even, you know, him as he went through his career, the Japanese influence was there. I mean, Loki has a lot of um, great Muda mannerisms and Samoa Joe took a lot of stuff from the from the four pillars. So even in the early stages of the indie boom, you saw the Japanese influence in like the forefront on those main guys. Yeah, that exactly. And those guys had extensive tours in Japan. Going to Japan's a lot more highly regarded than going to Mexico. So it's just all those influences um and to those wrestlers then you know, younger generations saw the low keys, the Joes, the um the Danielsons and then they emulate that, and then they say, oh, where did they get that stuff? Oh, Japan. Let, let, let me go there and emulate that, too. And um, the only influence you really see in when it comes to Lucha is really the high-flying style. Yeah. And that, made that those influences just are just mainly from cruiserweights. They're not really from, say, Alejandro Del Santo or whatever. They're, not, they're really mainly from Rey Mysterio. So I, that, I think that really, uh, when it comes to popularity, also when it comes to lucha, it's just very hard to get into if you're going in blind. You, you know, when you watch a trios match, a, a trios match, the two refs is very confusing, or you know, a lot of bad finishes, or the two out of three fall matches every single match. Just a lot of those things, and it's just the structure of the match themselves is very distant from 
the American style where Puro, it's not. Yeah, but like that's the thing is that it's funny how American wrestling doesn't really have that much of a lucha influence. But when you Other than high flying, yeah. But when you look at Japanese wrestling, you can find literal like examples of whole promotions that were influenced by Lucha Libre a ton. Like Michinoku Pro, like Toriyaman, like the entire Dragon Gate system. Like there's entire promotions influenced by um what was going on in Mexico. So it's funny that like Japanese um wrestlers and people there picked up on how influential and how um new and fresh Lucha was. But in American wrestling we haven't really seen that much on a high scale on a higher scale. Right, right. Like and also you gotta think you gotta think when Brian and Loki and Joe were coming up, it was a lot harder to get those tapes than it is now where we can literally have we literally have every promotion at a, the at our fingertips with the internet. You can literally just watch sleazy like Japanese promotions if you want. You can watch, you know, just you know, just little promotions all around the world that maybe draws like five people, and it's still awesome wrestling, you know. But it's those pioneers of American indie wrestling and their influences and things like that just mold and just build up from that where say if they were getting lucha tapes and they were emulating that i you might it may be a different story yeah you know we might just be having a completely different outlook on indie wrestling as a whole because who's to say what ring of honor would have done and accomplished if they didn't you know have so much japanese wrestling influence from their main guys and also, I mean, Gabe Sapolsky, when it comes to forming Ring of Honor, it was mainly Japanese influence as Paul Heyman. Yeah, he brought the WCW Cruiserweights before they WCW picked them up. But, you know, all, you know, Tajiri and uh, the whole, Paul the Heyman. FMW guys, Hayabusa, yeah, Masato Tanaka, the, Mike Awesome, um... Jinsei Sasaki. Um, so um, they brought in Gato and Jado at one point. So even in ECW, they were bringing in the Japanese guys. So you can uh, sort of go pre, you know, indie boom period to really see that that kind of really molded Gabe to book, you know, more of a Japanese influence. And I think the main thing that I've uh, noticed is that when you look at the history of Ring of Honor and the fact that until they brought in Dragon Lee last October, they had never brought in someone from Mexico. They never run a luchador. But when you look at Ring of Honor's history, it's sprinkled with bringing in different Japanese wrestlers and partnering up with with different Japanese promotions, starting off um, being partnered with All Japan Pro Wrestling, and they're bringing in Satoshi Kojima, the Great Moda, Kazayashi. Then I believe they went on to Noah, and you're bringing in Marafuji, Kobashi, 
Kenta. You know the Joe Joe and Kobashi match is considered the greatest Ring of Honor match the whole time in the history of the promotion. Mm-hmm. So you're bringing in the Noble guys, and then you bring in the Dragon Gate guys, like Shima. which they, you know in that that sponsor Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, and you know you're getting Shima, Genki Horiguchi, that whole original crew is in Ring of Honor. Then you're getting a one-off appearance from someone named Kota Ibushi. And then you're getting the, um, the more recent development of them being partnered with New Japan and them, before he got picked up, bringing in Shinsuke Nakamura, bringing back AJ Styles, bringing back um, Kazuchika Okada, Hiroshi Tanahashi, guys like that. So they've partnered with four or five different Japanese promotions, and it took them... Uh, 14 years of their existence to bring in one luchador. I mean, they've brought a couple others, like Hechicero, Angel Del Oro. Well, since then, I'm saying that the first one they ever brought in. Well, that was actually Stuka. Stuka, Stuka, Stuka. Yeah, he was, he was the first one. Right. And um, then they brought in Angel Del Oro, Hechicero, Ultima Grail, but the only one that has really caught on was Dragon Lee. Yeah, the only one that have been using regularly since then is him. Yeah. So it's like, you know, what do you think about something like that where Ring of Honor, who's been at the forefront of independent professional wrestling in the United States for such a long time and now they're not at Indy anymore. They are a company that have big financial backers. But with Ring of Honor being so influential, like the fact that they weren't using luchadors that is probably a reason why we didn't see as many guys get chances because they're more focused on, uh, I guess, partnering with these Japanese promotions. I guess they found it more pleasing, more marketable, whatever reason. But it is a very telling history of a promotion that has its fingerprints all over um, the last 15 years of modern wrestling. Yeah, exactly. And Ring of Honor was the most popular independent promotion in, in the history of independent wrestling, the only promotion to ever really embrace Lucha is Chikara. Chikara is based around Lucha, and they've brought in Luchadors like Atlantis, and I, I don't really, I don't know my Chikara history, and I'm not really and looking that, to get yeah, into Chikara. Chikara is that, um... It's a very niche promotion. It's not, it's not, you know, it's a very goofy promotion that's hard to get into for people. Yeah, but and even then, I don't like Chikara. I don't like Mike Quackenbush. But one thing that I'll always give Chikara credit for is that instead of being influenced like by Japanese wrestling like everyone else was, they were more influenced by Lucha and British wrestling. Yeah. So, in that regard, even though Chikara is a, uh indie power, they're not, they're not as popular as they used to be, um, they aren't as relevant as they used to be, I will always give Chikara credit because throughout their existence, they tried to be different in that and being different involved just using talent that, well, using talent and embracing styles that really hadn't been embraced before. Yeah, exactly. But also they have brought in Japanese guys like, and Japanese guys and girls like Minami Toyota and Asha Kong. So they even got stuck into that too. Yeah. So like, but that they, they were bringing Joshi people, so that that was a little bit different too. But yeah, I Ring of Honor not embracing lucha until now, when Ring of, Ring of Honor is not a, doesn't have that many buzz and things like that. 
really hurt the popularity of Lucha in the United States because up until Lucha Underground, we really didn't see that much representation of Lucha in America. And even Lucha Underground's not authentic Lucha Libre. It's like they have aspects of it. They use AAA wrestlers or what used to be AAA wrestlers. You know, sometimes they use Spanish words. Like, you know, they have like hints of Lucha and Mexican culture in it, but it's more um, Americanized, Americanized, so it fits for a TV audience. Yeah. And that's another thing, is that when you have no representatives of it, and when WCW dies out, the only only luchador that comes over is Rey Mysterio. So for a good long time, before Lucha Underground starts up, which would be in um, fall, of, fall of 2014... The yep. only mainstream representative you have of Lucha Libre is Rey Mysterio and to some extent Eddie Guerrero. But Eddie Guerrero Eddie passed Guerrero, away, passed away and in 2005. Then, then later, you know, they signed Sankara uh, or the original Mexico. He flops. You know, he was the biggest signing WWE had at that point, and he's a big flop. Alberto Del Rio, he, you know, his first run was good. And he got the championship, but you know, he he was adaptive. There were, he was he wasn't you know the high flying stuff that you see you saw with Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. He was the most marketable person, like most marketable luchador they could have picked up. Like they could have like he got they got a tall, muscular, good looking guy that they didn't have to put a mask on that they could have that spoke English very well that you could have just you know. Presented him not as a luchador. He was just a guy from Mexico, honestly. Yep. Yeah. So exactly. That isn't... So, like, the only true luchador representative that we had for a good, let's just say, 12 years was Rey Mysterio when it came to mainstream exposure. And then we get Lucha Underground in fall of 2014. And we already talked about it enough on the Supreme um, Lucha that we don't have to talk about here. But even then, Lucha Underground is failing to captivate an audience. So even when there is a show that's trying to bring new eyes to Lucha Libre, and it has made some people stars like Pentagon and like Phoenix, but ultimately it's failed at becoming a big um, force and making people pay attention to Lucha like that. And even before that. Uh, MTV tried with Lucha Libre USA, yeah, and that was a big flop. Mm-hmm. So I guess like the thing that I've taken away from here is that while there's obviously been more favoritism showed shown to Japanese promotions throughout the last fifteen years, the attempts to do Lucha and present it on a mainstream level have ultimately failed. And I think that has kind of damaged um, the reputation of Lucha in some people's eyes. Yeah, exactly. So, to wrap this up, what would you say is your favorite Lucha match of all time? <sighs> so many good ones. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to say two, and that's the two I sort of mentioned at the beginning of the episode of how I got into Lucha and that was the Atlantis duo mass match with Ultimate Guerrero and La Sombra because 
those matches really have a special place in my heart. Um, that's what got me into Lucha Libre. That's what, um, that's, you know, independent wrestling. I love that a little bit more than Lucha Libre, but Lucha Libre is always in my heart. It's, um, that those, and not mention that they're just great matches. Yeah. So that wraps it up here. Brandon, I thank you very much for, uh, doing this guest appearance here and for the people that don't follow you on ready uh, already where can they um follow you on twitter um you can follow me at brandon wagman uh b-r-a-n-d-o-n-w-a-g-e-n-a-n-n and do you have any plugs for anything that you'll be having um coming up in the future um i'm gonna be uh for wrestling with words which you can follow them at wrestle words um um, so that's a cheap plug for them there since this is on the PWO feed um, I'll be getting back into writing and it's going to be Lucha things um, since um, Mas Lucha has been uploading independent uh, matches in full late, lot lately I'm going to be reviewing those as they come out and I'm going to be also uh, reviewing uh, stuff from the Black Terry uh, collection that's getting uploaded to Powerbomb TV as we've seen a lot of matches get uploaded in the past two or three weeks and I can't wait to uh, dive into that and start writing about them. Um, they're not going to have any set dates because it's really going to be uh, depending on my schedule when it comes to school and stuff like that, but those will be on WrestlingWords.com. And once again, thank you very much, Brandon. And I guess this is the end of the guess, so I'll be here to lead you all off. And once again, I'd like to thank Rob, Sam, Dylan, Brandon, and Case for finding the time to do segments for the show. We didn't turn every possible stone, but I think that also leaves room for us to do uh, part two of The Art of Lucha. And... In these five segments, I do think we did cover a lot of ground. So, I encourage you all to check out the work those five guys do. Especially Sam, who's coming down the stretch on his We Don't Know Wrestling 100 poll. The next episode will be titled The Art of Insubordination. I won't give any clues or hints about what that episode will be about. But just know that I am very excited to talk about it. And it's maybe the most excited I've been to do a podcast in a while. Thank you all for listening. Hope you're here next time. Feel my week is near over. I lay awake in all kinds of darkness Polly.
Chief Will.